The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I'm your host, Chris Cooling. Remember, if you like the podcast, you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month and become a producer of Forgotten TV. Patreon supporters gain access to Forgotten TV Supplemental, additional podcasts that go beyond the information presented in the show. More on this during the end credits. If you don't use Patreon, you can make a one-time or recurring donation using PayPal at paypal.me slash ForgottenTV. Links for all of this are right here in the show notes or easily seen at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producers Will Welton and Doc Pinko. The DVD set used for review was provided by Doc Pinko. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. First, a message regarding dealing with content that features actors or content creators that are now problematic. Many listening to this podcast will be aware of the revelations regarding the lead actor that were admitted by him in 2014. To say this admitted behavior is reprehensible is an understatement. I am aware not everyone will be able to listen to this particular episode as a result. He is not the focus of the show, nor will we spend an inordinate amount of time discussing him. The show considered was the work of 14 directors, 27 writers, eight other regular actors, and approaching a hundred additional behind-the-scenes people and was not the product of any single individual. Still, I appreciate that people will have different sensibilities on these matters and that there are no easy, one-size-fits-all answers that fit into 140 characters or less. Some find that they are able to continue to enjoy the fictional character of Jake Cutter and others simply will not. Any such conclusion is a personal decision on the part of the listener, and it is my opinion that both positions are valid. It was the summer of 1982, one of the best summers for movies in history. Tron, Star Trek II, E.T., 
Conan the Barbarian, Blade Runner, The Road Warrior, Poltergeist, Rocky III, and even Fast Times at Ridgemont High were all chattily discussed when school resumed that fall. And we were still reeling from that fantastic adventure film from the previous summer that set the tone for the 1980s. Indiana Jones is back with more of the action, more of the suspense, and more of the excitement that made it the greatest adventure film of all time. Raiders of the Lost Ark. It'll always be fun. Trust me. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Rated PG. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Raiders was definitely flattered. The 1980s alone gave us High Road to China, Romancing the Stone, The Perils of Gwendolyn, Jungle Raiders, King Solomon's Mines, Firewalker, Sky Pirates, Alan Quatermain and the Lost City of Gold, The Further Adventures of Tennessee Buck, and River of Death. You might be able to think of others. When school resumed, my friends and I were also eagerly anticipating the new fall TV season. Over the summer of 1982, network promos for upcoming shows started running that clearly intended to evoke the same feeling of throwback Saturday matinee pulp adventure that made Raiders so enjoyable. CBS was touting Bring Them Back Alive, a 1930s-era adventure about big-game trapper Frank Buck. But I was particularly interested in something ABC was advertising, called The Gold Monkey. Under the memorable Come On Along slogan used for the 1982 fall campaign and narrated by ABC legend Ernie Anderson, the Gold Monkey promo also seems to specifically invoke High Road to China. And pursue the high road to adventure. Come on, baby. Join Jake Cutter, a pilot with nerves of steel. Give it up! Thirst for danger. He's a reckless soldier of fortune. You fight him, Jack! And a persuasive charmer. Come on! Jake! Oh, no! No! Defying death with every fall. Legendary mysteries deep in the South Pacific plunge Jake Cutter into a whirlpool of action and intrigue. A brand new series of daring and courage. The Gold Monkey, Wednesdays this fall. Today, many people that remember Tales of the Gold Monkey will almost all mention that it was that show inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this is understandable given the 1930s setting, the presentation of the promos, adventurous theme music, and the year it aired. But was it? While Raiders had its own cinematic influences, its opening sequence alone drew from at least some 30 films going as far back as 1919, Tales of the Gold Monkey drew from others. The show was intended as a character-driven 1930s period drama, an homage to great old Hollywood films like Casablanca and the classic Howard Hawks films, To Have and Have Not, The Maltese Falcon, and especially 1939's Only Angels Have Wings. 
This is Barranca, a South American banana port where men live by their daring and women by their charm. Out of the fog steps a girl with a questionable past and a devil-may-care future. Out of the clouds drops a man with a propeller blade for a heart and an expert's eye for a pretty face. Cora's girl? No, I do especially. So much the better. Leonard Maltin called Howard Hawks the greatest American director who is not a household name. His influence in entertainment and pop culture is substantial. More on this later. TV creator Don Belisario, responsible for such hits as Magnum P.I., Airwolf, and later Quantum Leap, JAG, and NCIS, had also been a writer-producer on 10 episodes of Bob Bob Black Sheep in 1977 and 78 which dramatized the World War II adventures of U.S. Marine Attack Squadron 214, the Black Sheep Squadron. The following year of 1979, while working on ABC's Battlestar Galactica, he pitched his series idea to ABC of a 1930s ex-Flying Tiger pilot living in the South Seas just before World War II. A 1930s drama was a hard sell to ABC at the time, who was doing well with 50s nostalgia with Happy Days in its spin-offs, sitcoms like Barney Miller and Three's Company, and unstoppable Saturday night escapism with The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. Belisario's Flying Tiger pilot series was a no-go. Instead, he went to work with Galactica buddy Glenn Larson, creating another show for another network. <laughs> Tom Selleck's mustachioed Magnum P.I. came to the screen in December 1980. With sports cars, helicopters, and a backdrop of the Hawaiian Islands, Magnum was pretty much an instant hit for CBS, becoming a top-rated show that season. Three interesting tidbits about Magnum. First, the show was originally in development at ABC. When ABC canceled Larson Show's Battlestar Galactica and The Hardy Boys, they also killed development of Magnum P.I., resulting in Larson and Belisario taking the show to CBS. Second, Magnum's character was originally called Thomas Cutter in the original spec script. Lastly, with Tom Selleck busy with his Magnum role, he famously lost out on the role of Indiana Jones on Raiders of the Lost Ark when that role went to Harrison Ford. The summer of 1981 then came and showed us adventure had a new name with Indiana Jones. Over two years after initially passing on it, suddenly ABC was interested in the gold monkey. Of course, fans will point out it wasn't originally called that. Originally, Tales of the Brass Monkey, a reference to a plot point in the pilot movie. Brass Monkey was also the name of a cocktail recipe, and Hoyblind Spirits produced a bottled cocktail mix with this name. Appropriately, the Brass Monkey drink has its own World War II legend as the drink that defeated the Japanese Imperial Secret Service. Brass Monkey also became a song released by the Beastie Boys in 1987. The name was thus changed to Tales of the Gold Monkey, 
filming the most expensive TV pilot ever made up to that time on location in Hawaii. Gold Monkey introduces us to the following cast of characters. Stephen Collins as Jake Cutter, American ex-flying tiger pilot, and soldier of fortune? That's pushing it. More like he flies people in cargo around the Marivellas Islands. Collins had most notably played Commander Decker in 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture. Another side note about casting, the original choice to play Jake was none other than Bruce Boxleitner, who ended up being Collins' competition of sorts on that other 1930s adventure show over at CBS, Bring Him Back Alive. Due to a deal his agent had with CBS, Boxleitner lost out on the role of Jake Cutter. Jeff McKay as Corky, mechanic and co-pilot and Jake's best friend. McKay had been Gordy, one of the teens pursued by Dr. Shrinker on segments of the Croft Super Show. He also had a regular role on Bob Bob Black Sheep and recurring bit parts on Battlestar Galactica. And his character Mac was killed off on Magnum P.I. so he could come to work on Gold Monkey. Caitlin O'Heaney as Sarah Stickney White. There's always a dame in the picture. American spy and torch singer in the monkey bar and Jake's quasi-girlfriend. A stage actress, O'Heaney had been a regular on the extremely short-lived 1978 TV series Apple Pie. Ron Moody as Bon Chance Louis, bar owner and French magistrate, suave, sophisticated, shifty. Moody had famously played Fagin in 1968's Oliver and had been a regular on overseas film and television. John Calvin as Reverend Willie Ten Boom, German spy and Dutch reverend, but he preferred the local island women to Hitler. He had been a regular on the Paul Lind show in the early 1970s. Marta Dubois as Princess Koji, a dragon lady-style Eurasian princess. She lusts for money power, and Jake. The Panamanian actress made her debut in the 1979 film Boulevard Nights. This would be her first regular TV series role. John Fujioka as Toto, Koji's henchman, the ultimate samurai warrior. This Hawaiian actor had an extensive resume before Gold Monkey, appearing on Mikhail's Navy, Kung Fu, Hawaii Five-0, MASH, and others. Les Janky as Gushi, Louis's wheelchair-bound partner that was treated like everyone else. Disabled in real life, Janky had been in 1980's 9 to 5 and the TV movie The Ordeal of Bill Carney. And Leo as Jack, Jake's one-eyed multilingual terrier, the coolest dog in TV history. More about Jack in Behind the Scenes. The pilot movie was heavily promoted on network promos and two-page ads and TV Guide on Wednesday, September 22, 1982, at 7 Central and Mountain. ABC aired Tales of the Gold Monkey. the premiere of the gold monkey. Jake Cutter. 
pilot. Hang on. We'll take you on an unforgettable journey. You said I could spend the night. You can't. Well, I didn't say I was going to spend it with you. Ah! 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 You can't get off us. We love you. Ah! The Tales of the Gold Monkey. is 1938, and we immediately start with pilot Jake Cutter flying his seaplane, a red and white Grumman Goose, in the skies over the Marivellas Islands, with his dog Jack by his side, and our adventure begins as we focus on an island deep in the South Pacific. German soldiers are hacking their way through the jungle and come upon a rather large species of ape, which one of them guns down for little reason. Then the ape tribe appears and descends on the soldiers to their doom. Cut to Jake Cutter and Jack in a card game with various characters, including apparently a German naval officer wearing a monocle. Out of cash, Jake ends up betting Jack's opal false eye with Sapphire Sinner and loses it. Outside, Jake and a disgruntled Jack have a disagreement over their communication system. I asked you if you wanted to bet your eye, didn't I? What do you mean, no? I showed you my hand. I said, what do you say? You said, right? Jack, what, what are you trying to pull? Jack, stay. Yes is rough, and no is rough, rough, right? Oh. Right, so. Jack, what's no? Oh. What do you mean no's rough? Oh, I get it. You're trying to switch signals on me. You want everybody to think I lost your eye again. Well, it won't work. All the world knows rough is yes, and Ruff Ruff is no! The pair come across Sarah Stickney White, half-heartedly fending off the advances of her handsy manager, and Jack doesn't approve. You may think this silly, but ever since I can remember, I had this urge to be a... a knight. Well, not in armor or anything like that, just in spirit. You know, to help the helpless, to find the wrong and right it. Then somewhere around 13 or 14, it sort of all became an urge to save beautiful damsels in distress. I just wish somewhere in all those books I read about knights and dragons, they'd have warned me about damsels wearing little straw hats. A Nazi officer meets with Japanese Princess Koji to discuss with her the legend of the gold monkey. Princess Koji runs the island of Matuka in the Japanese Mandate, and evidently has troops and resources such as ships at her disposal. Her compound is run by her bodyguard, Toto, and he and his men practice Bushido, 
Koji is incredulous, putting the legend on par with King Solomon's Mines and the Ark of the Covenant, also supposedly found somewhere in the Marivellas. She also has no respect for Hitler. However, when she hears how much he'll pay for it, she reluctantly agrees to team with this officer on an expedition to find the Gold Monkey. Jake flies Sarah to Bora Gora, braving a thunderstorm along the way. Despite her tough outer shell, or maybe because of it, I knew Sarah Stickney White was putting up a brave front. Under it all, she was just a frightened little girl. Then the port engine quit, and with her in the cockpit was a frightened little boy. Losing the port engine during the storm, Jake has Sarah dump the cargo of alcohol, Bibles, and a monkey cage to avoid crashing into the island of Baku. The goose regains altitude and manages to make it safely to Bora Gora. Pulling up to the landing pier, we meet Jake's mechanic, Corky. He is friendly and a decent guy, but we learn he has a drinking problem, which causes memory issues, which for an airplane mechanic who needs to relate critical maintenance information to the pilot is not the best trait to have. Jake's main rule is no drinking while working on the goose, and in his off time, normally enforces a one-beer limit. At the monkey bar, we also meet Reverend Willie Tinboom, known for giving the native women blessings. But Tinboom is really a Nazi spy, the same officer that drafted Princess Koji's help in finding the gold monkey. And his case of Bibles were, of course, more than meets the eye, and one contained a map of the island the German officers were killed on. He is met late at night by our German officer, Monocle, who we learn is actually a Gestapo officer. Jake agrees to fly Officer Monocle to his ship in exchange for the return of Jack's eye. However, Jake knows from radioing his friend out on the Navy destroyer Hancock it had been sold to a petty officer on board. Officer Monocle doesn't have Jack's eye, and Jake is really flying everyone to Baku. During the flight, Sarah reveals to Jake a little too loud she is really an American spy, and Monocle and Jack have a struggle, and the starboard engine is shot. Meanwhile, Tin Boom, Princess Koji, and Toto arrive at a Baku beach, and the island volcano begins to erupt. Arriving to an erupting Baku island without a working starboard engine, Corky gets busy on repairs, while Jake sets out on foot to save the escaped monocle and ends up having to save a tied-up Sarah who had set out on her own. In a cave, monocle finds a monkey idol about two feet high, covered in gunk. After a struggle which takes Jake and monocle over a waterfall, Jake emerges alone. Retrieving Jack and the monkey idol, our heroes fly out just in the nick of time, and the escape is witnessed by a distant Princess Koji through binoculars. Back at the monkey bar, Jack is still mad Jake didn't retrieve his eye, and it is revealed the monkey idol is actually made of brass, putting to rest the fictitious legend of the gold monkey. Unknown to our characters, back at Baku Island, a group of surviving apes take refuge from the receding volcanic eruption inside the head of what appears to be a giant gold monkey buried in the side of the mountain.
First, I have to mention the theme music, one of the most memorable TV themes ever in my opinion. Composed by Pete Carpenter and Mike Post, you have heard a clip of this fantastic theme at the beginning of each episode of Forgotten TV. Post and Carpenter were the kings of TV themes in the 70s and 80s, creating music for Chips, The Rockford Files, Hardcastle and McCormick, The Greatest American Hero, The A-Team, and Magnum P.I. Music scoring for remaining episodes was done by Frank Denson. Gold Monkey aired opposite the season premiere of Real People and the series premiere of the new sitcom Family Ties on NBC. Over on CBS, they were airing the first regular series episode of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and the first half of the CBS TV movie Made in America. What was the reaction to Gold Monkey? Bill Hayden of Gannett News said, Tales of the Gold Monkey is the new show that has intrigued the most people and generated the most speculation over its chances of being this fall season's monster hit series. Judging by tonight's two-hour debut, it succeeds in its mission. If the tone and quality is maintained in subsequent episodes, it can't miss. It is a larger-than-life adventure that holds the audience's attention because it is with good humor rather than camp. The story's tapestry also is enriched by little touches in dialogue, casting, and sets that are allowed to pass quickly by without comment. It is an approach that augurs well for audience acceptance and success of the series. Yes, this was clearly the best new series ABC was offering that fall. Gold Monkey won 31% of the viewing audience that night, a promising start. Watching this as an adult in the modern day, I was surprised at the amount of violence in a family adventure. A number of the apes get killed by gunshot and by sword, something you wouldn't see in today's far more targeted entertainment. More on this later. This was the pre-cable, and for most people still, the pre-VCR 1980s. In this era, families watched the same show together, and broadcast content that wasn't patently for an adult audience had elements made to appeal to the whole family. There was enough innuendo and thematic elements for the adults watching, as well as animals and adventure lighthearted enough to keep the kids engaged. And as a kid, I ate this pilot movie up. You're talking about a kid that had made a half-scale model of the Ark of the Covenant for the math fair the previous school year. So, Princess Koji's casually throwing out a reference to it whetted my appetite for the kind of series we might get. Yes, this reference, as well as the plot point of the Fuhrer in Berlin seeking mystical objects, both seem to call back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. However, you could also see the Maltese Falcon's influence, with the gold monkey idol revealed to be made of brass. The Maltese Falcon was believed to be a gold, jewel-encrusted statue, but is ultimately revealed to be made of lead. As an adult, I see the influence of Casablanca and other period films, and how the pilot movie seemed to strike a balance between the character-driven period drama and the more outlandish cliffhanger adventure fun the network wanted. You'll also note the frequent use of narration by the main character, a Belisario staple used in both Magnum P.I., and Quantum Leap. You can see the influence of Howard Hawks as well. From his early silent films to his later screwball comedies and sci-fi films, one enduring character archetype he gave us became known as the Hawksian woman. Portrayed by such film legends as Katherine Hepburn, 
Lauren Bacall, and Rosalind Russell, these lively, often fast-talking women knew what they wanted and could hold their own against their male co-stars, complete with mid-Atlantic accent, and provided an inspiration for the character of Sarah Stickney White. The ape makeup was generally very well done, especially any of them used in close-ups. On DVD, it was clear the rest were just masks, and they were all obviously actors in monkey suits. But the acting done by the very thin performers was effective, and we'll touch on that in our interview segment. The Princess Koji-Jake Cutter dynamic reminds me very much of Princess Ardala and Buck Rogers on another Universal show that had just gone off the air the prior year. Koji was a dragon lady type character, and Ardala was of the Draconian Empire. The pilot movie won the Emmy Award for Outstanding Art Direction for a Series in the 1983 Emmy Awards. It was also nominated for Outstanding Film Sound Mixing. As sometimes happens on these TV productions, Stephen Collins experienced a couple of close calls during the filming of the pilot movie. One was when Collins and John Hillerman, playing Officer Monocle, were grappling and went off the cliff into the water when Hillerman panicked and kept pushing Collins under. Then, later when Collins had to run through the water to catch up to the goose and get in the side hatch, the plane's engines were actually running and the goose was taxiing at an increasing rate of speed, with Collins holding on and being pulled under the fuselage when the director finally had the pilot stop the engines. This footage made it into the premiere movie. Tales of the Gold Monkey will continue in a moment. It happens inside the computer in a dimension man has never seen. Kevin Flynn, computer genius, is programmed into the world of the computer. prisoner in an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute. Tron, an adventure inside the computer. Rated PG. Coming soon to a theater near you. Warrior. Thief. Conqueror. King. Conan. A note about episode numbering. I'm using the same numbering convention found on IMDb and Wikipedia, which makes the premiere movie episodes 1 and 2, since in reruns, they ran individually. Episode 3, Shanghai. Directed by Alan J. Levi. Written by Donald Belisario. This is Levi's only Gold Monkey episode. He directed half the episodes of the short-lived The Invisible Man from 1975, several of the similarly-themed Gemini Man, as well as episodes of Battlestar Galactica, The Incredible Hulk, Airwolf, Magnum P.I., Lois and Clark, Jag, and more. He was also an executive producer on Probe. Guest-starring prolific TV actor Guy Stockwell, the older brother of Dean Stockwell. A schooner for me, mate. Oh. <laughs> hey, Ham. You're going to be just fine. 
Elizabeth? Jake, who's Elizabeth? Is Elizabeth your mother? I have no time for games, Corky. You're slavers. The episode begins with a dream, with Jake piloting his Curtis P-40 in his flying tiger days, with a drunken Corky in the rear seat, covered with empty beer bottles. The dream becomes a nightmare as Japanese Zeros gun down the plane, with Jake having to eject, leaving Corky to die in the crash. Then in real life, a mysterious Captain Ahab-type character, complete with a literal right hook, comes to Bora Gora and kidnaps Corky forcing him to fix a broken part on Ahab's slaver ship. Despite suffering from malaria, Jake goes after them, with Sarah tagging along. Their chase takes them to Princess Koji, who assists in Corky's rescue. This is typical of the type of TV Belisario was known for producing. Adventure stories with military themes weaved into them, especially his penchant for writing ex-military main characters and keeping the story light enough to conclude with a laugh and a freeze-frame ending. This episode heavily featured Cutter's Flying Tiger's history. And if the series itself wasn't actually inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark, elements of this episode clearly were reminiscent of that film. In one scene, Ahab and crew escape in a rowboat as natives shoot arrows at them, very similar to when the Hovitos chased Indy, who swam to Jock's seaplane for his escape. This episode introduces Roddy McDowell, replacing Ron Moody as Bon Chance Louis. With all apologies to Moody, McDowell is perfect for this character. In the opening dream sequence, Jake is shown flying the Curtis Wright P-40, the correct type of plane, but the wrong model. The model that was flown by the Flying Tigers was the P-42B Tomahawk, which was a single-seat fighter. There was no back seat. The plane shown flying is actually owned by the Planes of Fame Museum and is a TP-40N, a two-seat trainer used by the Army Air Corps, which was not even in production in 1938, the year the show is set in. In defense of the producers of Gold Monkey, at the time the series was filmed, there were no known P-40-2B Tomahawks in existence. In 1992, several were discovered in Russia that belonged to the same batch of planes from which the American Volunteer Group's planes were drawn. Shanghaiing, or crimping, is the practice of kidnapping people to serve as sailors by coercive techniques such as trickery, intimidation, or violence. Those engaged in this form of kidnapping were known as crimps. The practice flourished in the 19th century in port cities in both England and the U.S., especially San Francisco and Portland on the West Coast and New York on the East Coast, until several acts of legislation finally ended the prevalence of this practice. Using Shanghai as a verb came into practice in the 1850s, possibly because Shanghai was a common destination of the ships with abducted crews. And this episode featured a pretty funny scene where Toto eagerly heats up the hot tub Reverend Willie is hiding in, and the first time we see Princess Koji's tattoo on her rear right shoulder. Oddly, this episode was never broadcast on the later USA Network reruns, but instead was edited together with Trunk from the Past and syndicated as the movie 
Curse at the Gold Monkey. Two weeks later, Episode 4, Black Pearl, aired. Writers, Dennis Capps and George Geiger, and Bob Foster and Paul Savage, and Don Belisario. Director, Victor Lobel. Geiger was executive script consultant on the series, so we'll see his name pop up a number of times on episodes he co-wrote, rewrote, or had substantial input on the script. Dennis Capps is much more a TV director than a writer, and Savage was an actor in the 50s before transitioning to directing and writing and has a lot of credits from the 60s to the 80s. And Bob Foster, stay tuned. Victor Lobel directed 16 episodes of The White Shadow, also Sane Elsewhere, Beauty and the Beast, Deep Space Nine, and more. Jake, an outrigger! I picked this up on Tagataya for you. Jake, how sweet. You're not going to let up till I get your eye back, are you? Why would anyone want to kidnap Jake? It was his idea. I estimate be at least a thousand times more powerful than our two-ton bombs. You're kidding. Nine. The Nazis are at it again, this time attempting to create an atom bomb on an island near Bora Gora. The hope of the free world rests in the hands of Jake Cutter. Jake must pose as a defecting American scientist to investigate this top-secret German military experiment. Along the way, Sarah and Reverend Willie get to engage in some spycraft. This episode introduces Cliff Potts as Agent Johnny Kimball, who we'll see one more time later in this season. Also, there is a brief shark attack scene with footage directly borrowed from the movie Jaws. Both were universal productions, so this wasn't that far-fetched. Curious about who this Bob Foster was that is only credited with writing this and one episode of the short-lived TV series Casablanca, I started looking for who this was. Following a hunch, he might be the Robert Foster that worked as a writer-producer on Knight Rider. I asked producer Tom Green about him and got an answer. And a story about Bob you won't find anywhere else. Yes, that is indeed the same Robert Foster who was on Knight Rider when I was producing the show. The confusion has to do with something staff members did to each other, which was to pull practical jokes and other sources of humiliation. Robert was a great guy, very talented and terrific to work with. However, he was very innocent and quite susceptible to our practical jokes and other forms of blowing off steam from the extremely high pressure of the job. Robert was a very good-looking guy, tall, slender, with a shock of white-gray hair and beard, and an amazing tan and great white teeth. He looked like a mature Jesus. I believe he had been married and had a daughter that he adored, but for some reason I remember he was divorced, always having a hard time finding dates. It didn't make any sense since he was successful, good-looking, and a very kind guy, but he was a bit shy. We used to give him all kinds of crazy advice to help him find someone. He was not a one-night stand kind of guy. He genuinely was looking for a long-term relationship. Anyway, one thing we told him was that his name might be a problem, since Bob sounded like a boy, as in the famous restaurant chain out here, Bob's Big Boy, whose icon was a fat little boy. I remember I also told him that the English expression, Bob's your uncle, would come to mind when he told women his name 
since it means that anyone named Bob is a loser. That was, of course, totally wrong, since Bob's your uncle actually means that everything is going to be fine. For example, you may say, if you have a leaky toilet, just jiggle the handle, and Bob's your uncle, the leak will stop. Anyway, he took it to heart and officially had his writing name changed from Bob Foster to Robert Foster. And he even had a memo made up and sent to all of us, as well as other studio and network personnel, requesting that from now on they call him Robert. We used to refer to him as Robert Don't Call Me Bob Foster. So thus, Bob for Monkey and Robert after that. It was all in good fun since we all generally liked and respected him. Actually, as a side note, not long after he had his name changed, he was driving in his Porsche on the Hollywood freeway and saw this beautiful girl driving in the other lane. They exchanged smiles and other gestures, and before he knew it, they turned off to the side of the freeway and exchanged numbers. And he ended up taking her on a trip to a tropical island. So perhaps it wasn't such a bad idea. After Knight Rider, he wrote a feature that got made and did well, and sort of semi-retired. Sadly, not long after that, he died of a brain tumor. He will be missed. Episode 5, Legends Are Forever. Teleplay by Milt Rosen and Ruben Leader and Don Belisario. Story by Milt Rosen. Director, Virgil W. Vogel. This is the first of four episodes helmed by Vogel. Milt Rosen was a TV comedy writer in the 60s and 70s who later wrote episodes of Black Sheep Squadron, Hello Larry, and Trapper John M.D. Leader wrote multiple episodes of The Incredible Hulk, Magnum P.I., and Kung Fu The Legend Continues. Guest starring William Luckling and Baja Jola. You mean you believe his story? Why would he lie? Because he's after something. You get Jack and jump! They'll kill each other! No! Inside that cave is the treasure from King Solomon's mine. Ah! Come on, Jack, you're all over us! We gotta get out of here! Jake's old flying tiger buddy, Gandy Dancer, who has a history of chasing legends, talks Jake into helping him transport medical supplies to the malaria-stricken Watusi tribe and locate the treasure of King Solomon's mines. This episode really plays up an Indiana Jones vibe with lost tribes, poison darts, pedestrian suspension bridges high in the mountains, and the pursuit of a lost treasure. This was not unintentional, as we'll see in Behind the Scenes. King Solomon's Mines was originally an 1885 novel by the English Victorian adventure writer Sir H. Ryder Haggard, who is actually referenced in the episode. The novel has inspired film, TV, and radio adaptations. This episode was dedicated to director Larry Doheny, who worked with Belisario on The Greatest American Hero and Magnum P.I., Episode 6, Escape from Death Island. Written by Peter Elliott and Stephen Katz. Katz is credited for writing several episodes of The A-Team and Hardcastle and McCormick. Elliott is somewhat of an enigma credited with this and one episode of Heart to Heart. Directed by James Frowley, the first of two episodes he directed. Frowley directed about half the episodes of The Monkees, five episodes of the short-lived Paper Moon, and was a director on Magnum P.I., Scarecrow and Mrs. King, 
Father Dowling Mysteries, Cagney and Lacey, and many more. James Frowley just died in January. Guest starring Gary Gibson, Xander Berkeley, and Hector Elias. Jake and Corky fly an Englishman to an island prison near Boragora to visit his son and receive a rather rude welcome. The man finds his son near death from his time in the hot box at the hands of the sadistic warden. Forced into an escape attempt, they all find themselves prisoners. It's up to Louis, as magistrate de justice of the islands, to try to spring them, and when Corky gets bitten by a snake, it's a race against time. This episode featured a bizarre snake or tentacle swamp creature that was never explained, but that is the only fantastic element featured. Episode 7, Trunk from the Past Writers John Pashtag and Brady Westwater This writing duo also did an episode of Remington Steel and the 1986 film Bad Guys. Directed by Christian I. Nyby II. Nyby's name should be familiar to any TV fan of this era. He directed 30 episodes of Emergency, 5 Battlestar Galacticas, BJ and the Bear, The A-Team, Simon and Simon, and so on. Guest stars Jared Martin and Richard Eastham. What do you suppose it is? No! Sir, what's wrong? Get rid of it now, please! Why don't you want her to go, Ted? Because I happen to believe in the Pharaoh's curse. I happen to believe this lady is in great danger. But more than that, I really love her. You know, your fiancé is right. He's not my fiancé. That's not what he told me. Aloha! It was here, in my room. He told me not to seek Ka's tomb. Give me your hand! Cairo, 1937. And we get a glimpse of Sarah's past as her father was murdered by an Anubis-masked zealot, researching an ancient Egyptian trunk. Later, transporting a mysterious crate addressed to Sarah, the goose experiences strange gauge malfunctions. Successfully arriving, the trunk frightens Sarah greatly. Her father's ghost then appears to her that night, and the next day her old fiancé, Ted, shows up. It turns out her father had been researching the pharaoh Ka, and soon the group is off to discover a lost tomb from a migrated Egyptian colony, Pyramid included, where Jack is revered as a god. This is the first episode to show Jake in his Duluth baseball jersey, referencing his stint as a minor league pitcher for the Duluth Dukes. This is the other episode I mentioned earlier that was omitted from USA Network reruns, having been edited into a TV movie. And with this episode, the producers begin fading the closing freeze frame from color to sepia tone. Episode 8, Once a Tiger Writers L. Ford Neal and John Huff. This writing duo wrote three episodes of Kolchak the Night Stalker, ten episodes of Chips, and a Street Hawk episode. Director Winrich Colby. 
Rick Colby was a prolific director of genre TV, including Automan, Knight Rider, Millennium, and 48 episodes of various Star Trek series. Guest stars W.K. Stratton and perpetual bad guy Lance Legault. Jake, he's a tiger. From that missing air cargo flight? This is a mission for Uncle Sam. That Goonie Bird of Kramer's could be down in the Japanese mandate. This mission could be doubly dangerous. Cargo cult? Yeah. Take a primitive tribe well off the beaten path. Plane comes down and the locals think they've been favored by the gods. They'll be back. What's that? Ah! I've never seen anything like that. Be careful, Sarah! While Jake and Corky wait on the Bora Gora dentist, natives bring on shore a flying tiger pilot rescued from open ocean. Recovering... He joins Jake, Corky, and Sarah on a rescue mission to save his co-pilot and their cargo of prototype gun sites important to the upcoming war effort. They must evade the Japanese as well as island natives who have formed a cargo cult around the downed plane. Starting here, a title card is added to the beginning of most episodes, saying Somewhere in the South Pacific, 1938. Exceptions would be when an episode begins in flashback, such as the next one, or when the episode opens somewhere else in the world. Episode 9, Honor Thy Brother. Story by Jeff Ray and Danny Lee Cole. Teleplay by Jeff Ray and Danny Lee Cole and Bill Driscoll and George Geiger. Ray and Cole worked on The Greatest American Hero and The A-Team. This is the first of three episodes Driscoll worked on. He is also responsible for four episodes of the dreadful Partners in Crime. Directed by Michael Vihar. Vihar was a director on Fantasy Island and also directed an episode of the competing series Bring Em Back Alive, as well as Magnum P.I., MacGyver, and 31 episodes of various Star Trek series. Guest starring Soon Tech O. Manu Tupu, and William Lucking. My brother was prepared for death, Tiger. Are you? Don't let the bed bugs bite. Don't let Louie hear you say that. I kind of got a little surprised myself. Well, what is it? Welcome, son-in-law! Excuse me, but how did you come by that eye? No, not your pistol. <gasps> now, wait a minute! I don't think anybody doubts that the Japanese have a secret air base at Toriado. Give me a bomber base. What does he want? To kill me. Jake keeps spotting a Japanese Betty, a twin-engine Mitsubishi G4M, in the skies near the island Kinaru that shouldn't be there. German sailors are taking leave in the monkey bar, which results in a brawl when Jake realizes one of them is wearing Jack's eye. And a misunderstanding results in Corky finding an island bride in his room. But a series of strange brushes with death leads Jake to the island of Kunaru, into a battle for his life. Gandhi Dancer from Episode 5 is seen in flashback. One interesting tidbit about this character we originally saw in Legends Are Forever, William Lucking later plays a very similar character in the third season Magnum P.I. episode, Two Birds of a Feather. And this episode was Emmy Award nominated for Outstanding Film Sound Editing for a Series. Episode 10, The Lady and the Tiger. Written by Don Belisario. 
directed by Virgil W. Vogel. Guest starring Anne Lockhart, Richard Narita, and Jerry Superin. You have landed on Koti Ri in the Japanese Band-Aid. <laughs> Buck Jones has been waiting for hours to speak with him. He said there was no lagoon and he was making for the river. But you know where he went. I can't remember. There is nothing honorable in killing, being killed. But sometimes it has to be done. Jake crashes on an island in the Japanese Mandate and is rescued by an Amish widow and her young son, who is obsessed with killing the dreaded tiger prowling the area. The Amish inhabitants live in fear of a renegade Japanese soldier who goes by the name of Buck Jones. Jake has a shootout with Buck Jones, wins, and then is rescued by his friends. Jake bids a tearful farewell to the woman and boy who comforts his mother. I think I liked this episode better when I first saw it on Battlestar Galactica four years earlier. In the episode The Lost Warrior, Apollo crashes on a planet and befriends a local widow and her young son, who is obsessed with killing the dreaded lupus prowling the area. The locals live in fear of a renegade Cylon who goes by the name of Red Eye. Apollo has a shootout with Red Eye, wins, and is rescued by fellow warriors. Apollo bids a tearful farewell to the woman and boy who comforts his mother. It must be beautiful. He'll be back, mother. Someday. He promised he would. Yes, he did. Someday. Yes, Belisario recycled his own Galactica script. At one point, Buck Jones calls for a bottle of Red Eye as an inside joke. And of course, Anne Lockhart being in this episode was another obvious reference to Galactica. This is the only episode in which Jake admits that his parents weren't married and that he never knew his father, as well as details of his personal history previously only mentioned in the show Bible or Writer's Guide. This episode was originally interrupted in most of the United States when an anti-nuclear weapons activist drove a white van up to the base of the Washington Monument, claiming to have 1,000 pounds of explosives in the van. His demand was that a national dialogue on the threat of nuclear weapons is to be seriously undertaken. He held off the police for 10 hours before starting to roll the van toward the White House. At that point, United States Park Police snipers opened fire, killing him. No explosives were found in the van. Episode 11, The Late Sarah White Writers, Marianne Cassica and Michael Sheff and Don Belisario and George Geiger Cassica and Sheff also wrote several episodes of Heart to Heart and Murder, She Wrote. Director, Harvey Laidman this is the first of two Gold Monkey episodes Laidman directed. He also did a number of episodes of The Waltons, Street Hawk, Airwolf, Knight Rider, and would later direct Collins on Seventh Heaven. I still don't believe it. How could Sarah have suddenly died? The lady is dead and you want to discuss her liaisons? I want to see her body. 
can't tolerate rejection. But Jake Cutter, what's my appetite? He's chief military advisor here. General McCarthy? They just as soon as slit your throat. I say hello. Come to open it. Sarah has been on assignment in the Philippines for a month. When Boragora gets the tragic news, she died from hepatitis. Refusing to take the telegram at face value, Jake, Corky, and Jack head for Manila. They find a less-than-welcoming reception from the locals, as well as find Princess Koji and Toto, Agent Johnny Kimball, and General MacArthur. Regarding the distance the episode gives from Boragora to Manila, I have to say I mapped it out, and the writers got the distance correct from where the fictional Boragora would be located, just northeast of the Solomon Islands. Episode 12, The Sultan of Swat Written by David Brown Brown wrote seven episodes of Code Red and seven episodes of Scarecrow and Mrs. King, as well as Simon and Simon, Max Headroom, and Hunter. Directed by Virgil W. Vogel. Guest starring James Callahan, John DeSanti, Alberto Isaac, and Nia Peoples. I just never imagined I'd be standing in the monkey bar having a drink with Home Run Gamble. Boy, look at Jake go! A man makes a life out of the three Bs like I have. That's baseball, bourbon, and broads. He has to die. He murdered my teeth. The Japanese don't particularly like the idea of gamble spreading American goodwill in China. You will stay out of this. I will hang his fat body to rot in the wind. Enrique and some others are looking for gamble. They're going to string him up when they find him. When the China Clipper docks, Jake's boyhood baseball idol, Gamble Rogers, disembarks on a stopover on the way to China. And Jake is over the moon, giving Rogers a thrill ride in the goose. Things turn sour, though, when Rogers is accused of raping and murdering a young native woman, and Jake tries to prove his innocence. In this episode, Corky is seen reading Superman number 11, an issue that didn't come out until 1941. And this was one of Nia Peoples' earliest roles before joining the cast of fame in late 1984. Episode 13, Ape Boy. Teleplay by Andrew Schneider and Bill Driscoll. Story by Eric Lerner and Bill Driscoll. This is Lerner's first industry writing credit. He also wrote the 1990 film Bird on a Wire and 1998's Kiss the Sky. Directed by Winrich Colby, this is Rick Colby's second and final episode of Gold Monkey. Guest starring Shannon Sanuko, Michael Ensign, and Charles Bartlett. What's our exact location? Why does he need to know our exact location? Nah, he thinks we're going down. Brace yourselves! If they went down in that storm... What were you doing in my waters? Your waters. There's nothing on Pukatati but a few apes. That's what interests me. I'm a zoologist. If it's money you want. The key to my heart. What do you say we stay here together, huh? I wouldn't worry about apes. You don't bother them, they don't bother you. <coughs> this Bastille Day just isn't the same. They should have been here four hours ago. Five. Why would you want such a boy? People pay a fortune to see it, Canada. Capturing him won't be easy. Apes protect their own. You okay? I am now. But he thinks I'm his mother. What? Papa. 
Jake, Corky, Jack, and Sarah make an emergency landing on an island thought uninhabited by people. However, it is inhabited by apes, much to the chagrin of Sarah, if you'll recall the premiere movie. The group are attacked by a band of apes, and Sarah discovers a near-naked teenage boy living with them. Coincidentally, men arrive to capture the ape boy while they are on the island. What are the chances? 17-year-old Shane Sanutko, or Shannon as credited here, was Laura Ingalls' friend she shared her fool's gold treasure dreams with in a Season 2 episode of Little House on the Prairie. He had starred in the ABC Weekend Specials in the Soup children's book adaptations and was Petey in a couple of somewhat embarrassing Facts of Life type after-school specials where he learned that lifelong mystery of how the sperm gets from the man into the woman. Well, this happens when a man and woman are making love. It's called having intercourse. And this episode deals with the concept of a feral child. And in the episode, they refer to Victor of Aveyron, the most famous feral child in history, found in the south of France in 1800. The topic of feral children was covered in Forgotten TV, Episode 16, on Lucan. Episode 14, God Save the Queen. Written by George Geiger. Directed by Virgil W. Vogel. Guest starring James Avery, Roy Dotrice, Catherine Lee Scott, and Charles McCauley. I am Landrew. Ever see the Queen before? We give him the jewels, he tells us where he's placed his third bomb. If that guy can't get away, you'll have to tell him where the bomb is. It's all right. There's no reason to pass. When you die, you will go to heaven. Jack! Just show me where the bomb is. Could you be more specific? Jake and Corky fly a British nobleman to the Queen Victoria cruise ship, only to find out that this man has planted bombs on board and disabled the vessel. And he will tell the captain where the last bomb is when he is given the royal jewels that are on board the ship with the Duke of Windsor. It is a race against time and a wrench is thrown into things when the bomber expects Jake to pilot his getaway. And what are the chances he'll let Jake live after they reach his destination? The episode referred to a Queen Victoria ocean liner, but there was no Queen Victoria ocean liner in this era. There was a Queen Mary, as well as a Queen Elizabeth, both serving in the late 1930s and operated by Cunard White Star Limited, but no Queen Victoria. However, in 2007, Cunard launched the MS Queen Victoria, which is currently in service. Episode 15, High Stakes Lady. Teleplay by Bill Driscoll. Story by Lance Madrid III and Bill Driscoll. This is Madrid's only Gold Monkey credit. He has very few industry credits otherwise. He wrote an episode of Magnum P.I. and created the short-lived 1979 series Shirley with Shirley Jones. Directed by James Frawley. Guest starring Shelley Smith, Charles Napier, and Aki Aliong. Flying me to Tagataya isn't the only thing I want from you. 
I'm playing in a very high-stakes game. It takes 20,000 just to get in. I'm not jealous. I just hate anyone who's so obvious. It's disgusting. Sabrina? Princess Koji. I thought you were just a waitress here. He's not the goose. He's not in his room. He's not in her room. That mud ain't a card reader, is he? Uh, not tonight. Miss Doppler wishes to cash in her chips. I'd better find her. She didn't mention anything about you being there. Where is it? What? What's going on? You just let him go to another woman. It's a shame, I know. But I did try to warn him. Jake and that card plane lady left here on Yamamoto's boat. I will begin removing your flesh one pound at a time. Hey, there she is. Can you land near? Jake! A beautiful card shark hires Jake to fly her to Tagataya to play in a high-stakes poker game. While there, they of course run into Princess Koji and Toto, as well as the mysterious Mr. Yamamoto, who captures Jake and the woman in order to reclaim a secret roll of film that contains classified Japanese plans which were stolen by the woman, who is actually a spy. It's Corky to the rescue flying the goose in pursuit. Episode 16, Force of Habit. Teleplay by Tom Green. Story by Tom Green and William Schmidt. Green was a producer on Gold Monkey, and this was the first of six episodes he wrote. He'll be featured later in our interview segment. This is Schmidt's first industry credit and his only one for Gold Monkey. He became a story editor on Knight Rider this same year and has worked on Falcon Crest, Carnival, and the 2005 Night Stalker series. Directed by Harvey Laidman, guest starring Pamela Susan Shoup and Elizabeth Huddle. to get that vaccine back. Very low storm, bad sign for our flyers. They are in difficulty. There is no hate in their hearts, Jake. That's wonderful Sunday school talk, but this is the real world. We're out of gas! There's no more power! Two nuns, Mother Agnes and Sister Teresa, carrying cholera vaccines to China, land in a stopover in Bora Gora. Sister Teresa is an old friend of Jake's, which causes a scene in the monkey bar when he kisses her. Things get even crazier when an explosion rocks the monkey bar, and in the melee, the china clipper is stolen, as well as the goose. When Jake, Corky, and Jack leap on board as it leaves the dock, they are shocked to see Sister Teresa in the pilot seat. This story was loosely inspired by the 1957 film Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, which featured an American Marine and an Irish nun stranded on a South Pacific island during World War II. Green wrote the story with Elizabeth Huddle in mind for Mother Agnes. The network's broadcast standards department, yes, the BS department as Gene Roddenberry was known to call them, gave the production issues over the scene where Jake kisses Sister Teresa. Don Belisario was having none of it, though, and the scene stayed. ABC also objected to a scene where all characters entered Reverend Willie's church to pray for the safety of the gang up in the goose, a scene that played without dialogue. And this episode also featured several map paintings that were obvious on DVD, including one that was pretty bad. 
which was an aerial shot of the China Clipper and the getaway plane. It turns out it was a temporary insert shot, mistakenly left in the episode, and for some reason, the final footage was never added. After a late one-month mid-season break, episode 17, Cooked Goose, aired Friday, March 4, 1983. Writer J. Hoogley, this is the first of two Gold Monkey episodes, Hughley wrote. He became a producer and story editor on Magnum P.I. Director Donald A. Bear. Bear was a producer on Gold Monkey, and this was his third attempt at directing TV episodes. Guest stars Sandra Curry and James Hampton. The mercenaries, real killers. I got drunk when I was working on a goose! You have lost your precious goose. What are those? Goose bumps. Jake Cutter, defender of ladies, even demon ladies. Did you get this lady in trouble? No! Kill them. No, you can't do that. Do it and you're dead. While spending their honeymoon on a secluded island, a man and his bride are assaulted by mercenaries. The man is beaten and the wife missing. The evidence points to Princess Koji, but Jake has his doubts, as this type of thing is hardly her style. After returning to Borogora, the goose has an explosion in the middle of the night. The evidence points to a drunken corky allowing the goose to catch fire. Looks can be deceiving, though, and Princess Koji joins the hunt for the missing woman. With this episode, we see a slight shift in tone as the series is moved to a new night in time on Fridays at 9 Central, which meant it would be on against CBS's Falcon Crest, the number eight show on TV for the season. Why? More on this later. This one seemed dark, and it wasn't any fun to watch a tearful corky blamed for the burned-up goose. Kidnapping, attempted rape, beheadings, and a hot tub scene with Princess Koji getting naked fill out this first episode to air during this more adult time slot. Episode 18, Last Chance Louie. Teleplay by Tom Green and George Geiger. Story by Bob Shane. This is Shane's only Gold Monkey credit. He also co-created WizKids for the following fall season, so we'll be talking a lot about him this fall on Forgotten TV. Directed by James Fargo. This is the first of two episodes he directed. He would work on The A-Team, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and Hunter. Guest stars Henry Darrow, Faye Grant, Kurt Lowens, Jay Robinson. Yes, Dr. Shrinker. Faye Grant would become known to audiences two months later on the V miniseries as Julie Parrish. Papa, this is madness! This time, I will not miss. Louis, no! Walked up to a perfect stranger and shot him? You do not hold me. I'm afraid I will crumble into little pieces. Well, we got to do something, Jake. They're, they're going to kill him. Stay the execution. Give me some time. Ridiculous. I'm getting Louie out of here. Put the gun down. This isn't going to do any good. Louie! You gave me your word, mon ami. Among the passengers disembarking from the China Clipper this week is a man that Louie recognizes. He goes into the monkey bar, comes out with a gun, and shoots at the man, grazing his ear. Later, Jake has to intervene in an old-fashioned duel between the two. 
Later that same night, Louis seemingly outright shoots and kills the man. Facing trial on Tagataya, he is sentenced to death by guillotine. It's up to Jake to uncover the secret of why Louis wouldn't even defend himself during the trial before the sentence is carried out. Fibber McGee and Molly is mentioned by Corky in this episode. This was a radio comedy show that aired during this era before becoming a TV series in 1959. In keeping with the new adult time slot, a traveling salesman shows up to Borogora selling French playing cards and shows an adult movie in the monkey bar. Writer-producer Tom Green thinks this episode represents the show hitting its stride and finding its style. I don't know that I fully agree. A couple of the last few episodes also had a more serious tone and lacked the more adventurous, fun spirit of the first half of the season. I think the episodes following Ape Boy delineated the tonal shift of the series. While this was a great dramatic episode for our cast, especially Roddy McDowell, this type of dramatic character piece story could have been done on any series. This is just observation on my part and a matter of personal taste. ABC's BS department also gave their inevitable network notes on this episode, this time objecting to the French court speaking French instead of the scene being shot in English. However, the producers gave the audience enough credit and kept it that way. And this is, of course, the episode where Stephen Collins met Faye Grant and they married in 1985. Episode 19, Nakajima Kill Teleplay Andrew Schneider and Tom Green. Story by Tom Thomas and Andrew Schneider. Director Jack Whitman. This is Whitman's only Gold Monkey episode he directs. He was, however, the director of photography for most of the episodes in the series, and was also the DOP on The Amazing Spider Man. Guest stars Michael Mullins and Sandy Ward. Special guest star Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall at this point was a guest role TV actress and had recently been in the 1981 movie Porky's, but was hardly a known actress otherwise. More on Kim Cattrall in our interview segment. Just where am I taking you tomorrow, anyway? It's an island called Matuka, run by a princess. I'm going to do an interview with the Defense Minister of Japan. You'll be careful. I'll be back. Jake! Cheryl's nine o'clock! I am anxious to show you some hospitality. Well, we had some peanut butter sandwiches on the way over. You brought an assassin to this island. Look at the way you talk about America. Whitney, for once, would you just shut up? It's a warrior code. Once their swords completely leave their sheaths, they have to taste blood. Yatsura will cross it! Jack, look out! Sarah's college roommate, Whitney Bunting, a newsreel reporter, arrives on Boragora to get an interview with the Japanese defense minister, the recent subject of an assassination attempt. Unfortunately, she'll go to any length, including putting everybody's lives in danger to get the job done. 
The defense minister is followed by this would-be assassin, who is a master of disguise and could be anywhere in the island chain, and it is up to Jake and his friends to smoke the assassin out. This episode was based on a January 1982 Magnum P.I. episode called The Jororo Kill. Andrew Schneider was paid for the story, and it was adapted with gold monkey characters. In the Magnum episode, a female reporter that Magnum, T.C., and Rick met in Vietnam gets a tip that a visiting prime minister will be assassinated in Honolulu. In the original Gold Monkey script, it was Emperor Hirohito, not the fictitious defense minister who was being plotted against. Noting the character's appearance seemed very clearly inspired by a young Hirohito, I suspected there was a change imposed by the network censors. Tom Green Yes, you were right. Of course, Don thought the story that was on Magnum would fit well. With a lot of changes, of course, to Gold Monkey. He really didn't like doing that, and rarely, if ever, did it again, since that was one of Glenn Larson's trademarks. He always took not only stories, but full scripts, and would just change character names for future series. In fact, he was one of the first producers to use the very new and advanced scanner that would read the text on the pages of a script and transfer them to a computer file. The computers then were also very new, and he was one of the first to use one and then he would search and replace character names from the old script to the names of the characters in the new show, and with other obvious needed adjustments, have a new script in less than a day. Anyway, we had written in a young Hirohito as the subject of the assassination, and even cast someone, who I believe had done extra work on the series before this, as Hirohito. However, I believe the legal department at either the network or the studio asked us to make him simply a high-level official instead. So the reference to the name was taken out right before shooting. A few other side notes. If you notice the close-up look on his face when Purdy, now dressed as a man, comes in to kill him, it's a great look of shock and surprise. The show was directed by our director of photography. Don was good at giving his crew chances. And Jack was good but asked for a lot of guidance. He was worried about getting the right reaction since the man playing the part was not a real actor. So I suggested that the actor be kept from seeing Michael Mullins, who played the female imposter assassin until the very moment he is revealed on the set during the shoot. Jack did a close-up on the Japanese actor, and then I told Michael to come in as a crazed lunatic, screaming a rebel yell and swinging a samurai sword at him and get as close as possible to his head, even though in the story he is holding a gun that he makes up from parts of his camera. That terrified the poor actor, which is why we got that insane look. By the way, I knew that Michael would go crazy like that since I had been on the beach one day when he was shooting a film called Pom Pom Girls, where he had a big part. I was dating one of the Pom Pom Girls at the time and was on the set to visit her. I'm not sure if he went crazy as part of the shoot or just because of the frustration he was feeling making that film. He used to do impressions of the girls, so when we were casting this, I asked the casting director to have him come in. One other quick story. As you know, in the story, Princess Koji's bodyguard is supposed to have chopped Purdy's head off, although we never see it. 
However, I called one of the executives at the network to tell him how excited I was. I said, oh, wait until you see the dailies. We had an amazing realistic head made up for the Purdy character, and you see Toto cut his head off with the sword in slow motion, and just like in The Seventh Samurai, blood shoots out of his neck like a geyser. And then we have this great close-up of the blood-soaked head rolling across the room, and Toto picking it up. Of course, this was totally against all rules of what is allowed in a TV show of the day, and he went ballistic. I love the fact that he probably spent the whole night freaked out about what he was going to see the next day. Funny thing was, of course, there was no footage like that, and he never mentioned it. This episode was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Costume Design for a Series. Episode 20, Bora Gora or Bust. Writers, George Geiger and Tom Green. Director, Ivan Dixon. Yes, Kinchlow from Hogan's Heroes. This is Dixon's only Gold Monkey credit. Although primarily known as an actor, he had 47 directing credits, which included The Waltons, The Rockford Files, The Greatest American Hero, and Magnum P.I. Dixon died in 2008 at age 76. Guest stars John McLeam, John Riley, and Gerald Hyken. Veins. Platinum veins. Crisscrossing each and every way. Right there on my claim. Looks like somebody shoot the fireworks at it. We'll do a stupid thing like that. In the U.S., we call it claim jumping. Laws to protect French interests in their colony. It's going to be island-style justice after all. Hastings! Get out, sir! How could you have enlisted this poor, innocent Christian girl into your service? I will play in your church. You can play in mine. You and me keep the other guys out of this, and we're going to have a fall! This is going to be my last trip to the mine. Sarah Dowser's out to kill himself, and... Maybe I'm the only one he'll listen to. You might as well try to land on a wet blotter covered with straw. I gotta buy you a seatbelt. Why are we going so fast? Now, if I can keep the speed up, it's actually lighter than walking across. Jake, Corky, and Jack are flying into Borogora and see fireworks in the sky. It turns out an old miner named Dowser who has lived on Borogora for 40 years, is finally rewarded for all his hard work when he finds platinum on his land. Borogora is turned into a boomtown, with people from all over arriving in hopes of striking it rich. But when a sleazy American businessman exploits a loophole in French claim law, Dowser may lose everything. Meanwhile, Reverend Willie is incensed when Monsieur Lumaire sets up his Palace de Paris tent in the middle of Borogora and recruits native women for more than doing just the can-can. This episode had the original title Million Dollar Baby. In sort of a Wild West episode, Borogora experiences its own gold rush. The episode features a pretty decent motorcycle jump stunt during the climax of the story. Tom Green says the period motorcycle with sidecar was discovered on the studio backlot during the production of Last Chance Louie, and essentially the episode formed around the idea of this motorcycle stunt. Also, the BS department at ABC gave the show trouble over Monsieur Lemire's Can-Can Girls. The network censors had heard a rumor that the Can-Can dancers were wearing no underwear. 
A special screening had to be set up to watch this scene frame by frame to make sure this was not so. After they were satisfied, Tom Green joked to the network rep, Did you see the third from the left? You'll notice that wasn't a woman, that was a man, and you can see his penis. And the rep ran back into the theater to check. He was not heard from regarding this matter again. Tom expands on this during the interview segment. Episode 21, A Distant Shout of Thunder Written by Tom Green and George Geiger Director, James Fargo Guest stars, Jose De Vega and Michael Cavanaugh You are defiling a sacred place Bele will not permit an eclipse You cannot order these people And you can order the heavens even less She's robbed the grave of Pele, and she must atone to the fire. A woman has angered our gods. Nobody believes your superstitions anymore, Lucien. She will atone. Got nothing to atone for. Now to that god, for any god you care to name. Why have you come to me? Last night you came close to stirring up a lynch mob. I've been chosen to show my people the truth of my cause. Jake Cutter, tell them all I'm a fake! She can't just have disappeared into thin air. There is only one place to sacrifice to the god of fire. Sarah Dude! All characters are outside observing as Borogora experiences a total solar eclipse. Sarah picks up an idol of Pele, the fire god half buried in the dirt. One of the would-be native leaders isn't happy, and the island starts experiencing one plague after another. Hail, frogs, and the monkeys over the monkey bar begin bleeding. Soon the natives are burning Sarah in effigy on the beach, and there is a volcanic eruption along with earthquake that triggers an evacuation of Borogora. When the lava starts flowing, it's a race against time as Sarah is kidnapped by the natives and drugged to where she is willing to sacrifice herself to their volcano god. This episode edits in footage from the 1961 movie The Devil at Four O'Clock, and it does it very well. In that film, a South Pacific island is menaced by an erupting volcano. The story behind all of this is quite interesting. Tom Green had fallen asleep in front of the TV and woke to seeing Frank Sinatra and Spencer Tracy in the monkey bar and Bora Gora being destroyed by a volcano. It turns out art director William Tunkey had designed and built the series sets based on the studio blueprints from The Devil at 4 o'clock. This presented a rare opportunity to use footage from this film to add production value to a level that couldn't be afforded otherwise on a series budget. Tom Green and George Geiger then wrote an episode revolving around this volcanic eruption. The footage was obtained from Columbia Pictures, and the rest is history. ABC insisted on an episode tag that had a non-supernatural explanation for the bleeding monkey statues and that also depicted our characters back at the monkey bar cleaning things up to show that all was not destroyed and the show could indeed come back for another season. During filming, tiny tree frogs actually infested the gold monkey set, which had to be cleared out to make way for the big frogs that were scripted. The studio also experienced hail and flooding during filming due to El Nino, 
stranding some crew for days. In fact, all manner of problems happened during production. Generators went out, ants infested the set, props went missing, and Tom Green pulled his groin during filming. Don Belisario and his little boy, Mickle, both have walk-on roles as a father has to retrieve his little boy from the dock. Michael Cavanaugh, who was later George Fox on Starman, had a small role at the beginning as a visiting astronomer. And Branscombe Richard, who we would later see on The Highwayman, also appeared. This would have been a great and logical season-ender, and indeed it may have been intended as such, but ABC asked for one more episode. Episode 22, Morning Becomes Matuka. Teleplay by Jay Hoogley and Tom Green and George Geiger. Story by Jay Hoogley. Director, David Jones. This is Jones' only Gold Monkey credit. Guest stars Alexa Hamilton, Sab Shimono, Alex Colin, and Mark Hayashi. Jay, watch out! in my own organization is trying to assassinate me. You're living in a fortress. You've got hundreds of guards running around. Any one of whom may be ready to take my life. If that will come to harm, Jake Cutter, we must die. you got to just take us out of here, Jake, before it's too late. The killer has got to make a move. And what if you're wrong? Begun to give blessing. They speak hard. Remove the jacket of the murderers, flying tiger. You will not flaunt your pride in being a murderer here. Remove that jacket. If you're going to kidnap me, you better do it now. At a birthday celebration for Princess Koji, an assassination attempt is made on her, which is foiled when Toto leaps in front of her, taking an arrow intended for the princess. Not trusting her own staff, she hires Jake as bodyguard. When she is killed, Jake's blood-chit jacket becomes a target on his back for the visiting Japanese military. When Jake is falsely accused by Koji's sister, he asks for the right of seppuku. Having trashed many of the Borogora sets for the last episode, which was intended as the season finale, this one takes place entirely on Matuka. The crew didn't have the budget or time to clean up and repair the sets, so when ABC asked for an additional episode, they set it on Matuka. This episode also didn't feature Roddy McDowell, due to Roddy having a case of shingles at the time. I have to say I agreed with General Anago in this episode. Wearing his flying tiger jacket was disrespectful and inflammatory to the Japanese, especially the military on the island for Koji's funeral. This episode was an odd story to end on, and possibly a lot of viewers didn't catch it. It aired some eight weeks after the previous one, and back on Wednesday night, albeit one hour later than the original time slot, now after a rerun of The Fall Guy. Reruns of Gold Monkey would air on this Wednesday night time slot, during the summer of 1983. Tales of the Gold Monkey will continue in a moment. Indiana Jones is back with more of the action, more of the suspense, and more of the excitement that 
have made it the greatest adventure film of all time. Raiders of the Lost Ark. It'll always be fun. Trust me. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Rated PG. Behind the scenes. This was my third viewing of Gold Monkey. I, of course, saw it when it first aired, again, nine years ago when I rented the discs on Netflix after it was released to DVD, and then when I was researching this podcast. During its initial airing, it was welcome midweek escapist entertainment I wholeheartedly devoured. I loved the interaction between man and dog, the South Seas adventure, and was old enough to actually appreciate the adult themes as well. The day after the pilot movie, the discussion at the lunch table at school was Jack and discussing the one bark means no and two barks means yes communication system. I was quite disappointed when it didn't return for the 1983 fall season. The move by ABC to not renew Gold Monkey after giving it a full season surprised others in the industry. A couple years following the cancellation, NBC president Brandon Tartikoff met with Stephen Collins and admitted their own metrics based on the TVQ rating system indicated the show had such a high Q score, it had the potential to be on the air for seven seasons. ABC used a different ratings metric, but as we'll see, the decision was probably more complicated than simply one based on ratings. Actor Jeff McKay confirmed people who worked for CBS series development told him they were planning on having to schedule against Gold Monkey for five years. So, what happened? The show was well-received by audiences. Although the ratings dropped in the weeks following the premiere, there was actually an uptick in ratings after the mid-season tonal shift of the show. But it failed to crack the Nielsen Top 30 by the end of the season. NBC's Real People was serious competition. Still, there were network people at ABC that fought for it, such as the director of dramatic series development, Jordan Kerner. Even the boneheaded move to Friday night perhaps wasn't ill-intentioned, as we'll explore during our interview segment. As we touched on earlier, it turns out the episodes that were my favorites, the ones with treasure hunts, lost tribes, killer apes, booby traps, and poison darts, 
were the ones Don Belisario actually didn't want to produce, as they were storylines not true to the original intent of the show, as mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. As a kid, I personally felt the references in the pilot movie and promos to The Ark of the Covenant and Amelia Earhart gave us an idea of what we were in for as Cutter explored the Maryvellis Islands each week. Although we did get a King Solomon's Minds episode, when the vast majority of episodes did not seem to be in this vein, I felt at the time it was a bait-and-switch on the audience. However, as explained earlier, I now understand the cinematic influences involved, and the intended tone and direction of the show, as opposed to the show ABC wanted and advertised in promos. Although a few of these plots peppered the first half of the season in an attempt to appease the network, the show ended up not being renewed due to this constant struggle between Don Belisario and ABC. At a very early production meeting, when Belisario was going over upcoming storylines, the network reps would say, No, that's wrong. Don't do that. Instead of the sultry, period look Belisario and crew were going for, ABC wanted a different tone. Producer Don Baer The network didn't like the lush look of the series. They wanted it to be light and sunny, like a kid's show. They saw it as bright. The villains had to be clear-cut, and the very idea that characters might speak with foreign accents really bothered them. It was unbelievable. Everything had to be articulated and clear, and the intrigue was not what they were looking for. So the show was considered controversial. Producer Tom Green confirms they wanted to continue to play up similarities to Raiders of the Lost Ark. The studio kept pushing for mud people and monkey people and other elements that would play up the similarities. Ironically, the very thing that finally sold the show to ABC, the influence of Raiders of the Lost Ark, was eventually its downfall. Director Ray Austin had a positive experience directing the Tales of the Gold Monkey premiere movie. I shot that pilot for Donald Belisario. I loved it as soon as I read the script. I was really into that period, the 1930s. It was an absolutely super period to set a series, surrounded by that Casablanca feel. Belisario was sort of living in that era at the time and coming up with great ideas. We would sit in his office and talk things over and over. The pilot was turned into a series on only the fourth day of rushes. When ABC saw them, they said, hey, we'll go with it. We shot the pilot in 19 days in Hawaii and at Universal. The art department built this enormous greenery stage at Universal, one of the biggest they had ever done for a series, complete with a giant waterfall and river for the jungle scenes with all the apes in it. The stuntmen dressed up in monkey suits, and many of them watched films to learn their movements. It was bloody marvelous. Then in Hawaii, we did all the stuff with Cutter's Goose, the seaplane. We had such a good time. Yes, the pilot movie was indeed partially shot in Hawaii. One location used in several scenes was the Makai Research Pier in Waimanalo on the island of Oahu. And if it looks familiar, the location was also used for TC's office and helipad on Magnum P.I. Once the regular series episodes were filmed, the pier used was the one in the Universal backlot, and the differences can easily be seen when you compare the two. Shots of the goose flying, taking off and landing, and so on were endlessly reused throughout the series. 
the Groom and Goose plane used in week-to-week episode production was moored in Park Lake, also known as the Red Sea, at Universal Studios throughout production. The pier was removed after production of the show wrapped in early 1983. The Monkey Bar set, also known as the Blue Parrot Hotel, as mentioned earlier, was the work of set designer Bill Tunkey, modeled after the sets from the movie The Devil at Four O'Clock. The Blue Parrot being a reference to the bar run by Signor Ferrari in Casablanca. It was an exterior facade with interior sets and an open back. According to the StudioTour.com, it originally started as a set for the 1981 TV movie The Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. While that TV movie was clearly shot at Universal Studios, this claim is simply incorrect. It was specifically built for Gold Monkey. It was built on rails, with wheels like railroad boxcars, so the entire set could be moved, so other set pieces like trees and foliage could be put in front, so the area could be used for other locations. Although not its original intent, this feature came in handy for the episode A Distant Shout of Thunder, when it was used to shake the entire set back and forth with cables and machinery to create the earthquake effect. The exterior can also be seen in the 1984 Simon and Simon episode, Revolution Number Nine and a Half, and the 1984 Knight Rider episode, Fright Night. The monkey bar was left standing at Universal Studios until 2009. William H. Tunkey was an art director and production designer on a number of TV series and movies, from Disney films of the 60s to Kojak, Buck Rogers, and Street Hawk. Bill Tunkey died in 1997 at age 90. And there was another monkey bar of sorts. Another tidbit I dug up. Stuntman and memorabilia collector John G. Hagner modeled his tropical saloon set after the monkey bar from Gold Monkey when his Hollywood Stuntmen's Hall of Fame and Museum moved to Banning, California in 1983. The Monkey Bar Saloon dominated their central courtyard, which also featured a gift shop and display rooms featuring memorabilia from Hagner's extensive personal collection. The museum enjoyed a surge of popularity in part due to the ABC series The Fall Guy. Admission was $2 for adults and $1.25 for children. The Monkey Bar stood until the museum moved again to Moab, Utah in 1989. John Hagner, who moved to Southern California in 1958 to pursue a career as a stuntman, died just last year at the age of 91. But a year before he did, he worked on the movie Astro and fulfilled his wish to be the oldest working stuntman. Gold Monkey was set on the fictitious island of Bora Gora in the fictitious Marivellas Islands. In the show continuity, the islands were split into two territories, with the north half controlled by the Japanese and the southern half by the French. Of course, the name Bora Gora is a play on the real island of Bora Bora, located in French Polynesia, one of the most remote locations on Earth, some 3,000 nautical miles from where the Marivellas would have been located. The Gold Monkey website contains a complete breakdown of the Marivellas Islands, including a geographic map based on distances mentioned throughout the series. Stephen Collins and Faye Grant, 
who had begun seeing each other after meeting on Gold Monkey were on a trip across the Pacific when news came of the show's cancellation. Incredibly, they were on the island of Bora Bora when they got the news. Collins recalls, I actually cried about it. I had felt closer to my co-stars on that show than to any other group of actors I had worked with. Three scripts are known to exist that were never produced. These include Lady from a Colder Climb, written June 1982. Participating writers were Andrew Schneider and Paul Savage. Jake tries to help a beautiful woman professing to be Anastasia Romanoff, heir to the Russian throne, prove her claim. To do this, they must find a Russian priest allegedly living on an island inhabited by cannibals. Visions from the Past Written August 1982 Participating writers George Geiger, Sheldon Chad, and Donald R. Boyle While coming to the aid of a sinking ship, Jake meets a woman who's a dead ringer for his lost love. However, she's not what she pretends to be. River to the Past, written November 1982. Writer, Steve Zito. This is a rewrite of Visions from the Past and would have featured a sea monster known to the natives as Katarangura, which in reality would have turned out to be a German U-boat. Earlier I touched on the violence contained in the pilot movie, and it turns out this didn't go unnoticed at the time. The self-appointed National Coalition of TV Violence released their findings on the 1982 fall TV season, and Voyagers, Bring Him Back Alive, Knight Rider, and Tales of the Gold Monkey were specifically called out, even claiming Voyagers was the most violent show of the fall season, and Gold Monkey was the third after the fall guy. The group also made reference to an episode of Magnum P.I., where Magnum gunned down an unarmed man. Something we'll come back to in our interview segment. What shows were on the nice list? Gloria, Family Ties, Cheers, and Square Pegs. The Grumman Goose aircraft line was originally built by Grumman in the late 1930s for wealthy Long Islanders who wanted an aircraft for personal and business use. Well-heeled businessmen would leave from the water that bordered their Long Island mansions and fly as commuters to a seaplane base located at the foot of Wall Street, the ultimate in pre-war luxury. World War II ramped up the production of this model, with the Navy buying over 200 of these planes. The main hero aircraft used for Cutter's Goose flying scenes in reality was a 1939 Grumman Goose, a G-21A, construction number 1051, meaning it was the 51st one built. The plane was used in the Peruvian Air Force up to 1958 when it was sold into civilian service in the U.S. and given the U.S. registration number N-327. In 1970, an FAA aircraft accident report indicated the plane had been destroyed. It changed hands multiple times, was completely rebuilt, and placed into service in Juneau, Alaska in 1974. After more ownership changes, owner Robert Hall leased the goose to the Gold Monkey production and flew it in filmed segments. After the show wrapped production, the plane was thoroughly inspected and repaired, and it changed hands a couple more times. 
1994, the plane was damaged in a landing and subsequently repaired. The plane changed hands again several more times. But on February 5, 2005, after a total of 8,821 flight hours over its service life, the Goose suffered a catastrophic crash during an instructional flight while simulating starboard engine failure, the same engine shot by Officer Monocle in the pilot movie. It is somewhat unclear what actually happened, but the aircraft impacted the ground, caught fire, and both men escaped. Today, you can see the restored N-327 Grumman Goose on display at the Cradle of Aviation Museum in Garden City, New York. Another interesting story is what happened to the original aircraft show producers intended to use, the Grumman Goose N-2845D. In February 1982, in a scenario eerily reminiscent of the events in the episode Force of Habit, while being flown to California to be used on the show, pilots not familiar with the fuel valves used on this aircraft ended up literally running out of gas and made a crash landing into the sea 35 miles off the coast of North Cape Yakutaga, Alaska. The pilots were rescued, but the plane was not. Somewhere at the bottom of the Gulf of Alaska lies another Cutter's Goose. Too bad they didn't have any of Louis' 180-proof rum on board. The other aircraft regularly shown and mentioned was the China Clipper, which would make weekly visits to Bora Gora each Wednesday, flying east one week and west the next. In the continuity of the show, Jake, in the past, had a co-pilot position on the China Clipper, where he met Corky. The China Clipper was a real aircraft, the first of three Martin M-130 four-engine flying seaplanes built for Pan American Airways and was used to inaugurate the first commercial Trans-Pacific airmail service from San Francisco to Manila in November 1935. Later, passenger service was added. Tickets were extremely expensive, the equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars today. The China Clipper remained in service until 1945, when it crashed in Port of Spain, which broke the hull in two and the plane sank. Twenty-three passengers and crew were killed. The Flying Tigers, known as the AVG, or American Volunteer Group, only operated from December 1941 to July 1942. They were American pilots from the Army Air Corps, Navy, and Marines and formed a flying foreign legion to assist China in its war with Japan. They were then officially absorbed into the U.S. Army Air Corps on July 5, 1942 and assigned to the 14th Air Force, 23rd Fighter Group. As mentioned earlier, the group flew single-seat Curtis Wright P-42B Tomahawks with large shark faces painted on the nose of the aircraft. The large patch seen on the back of Jake Cutter's jacket was known as a blood chit. These were issued to the Flying Tigers by the Chinese government to keep them from being mistaken for enemy pilots by the locals. The blood chit consists of a Chinese nationalist flag and the promise of a reward, written in Chinese, for helping save the pilot's life and providing his safe return to his airfield. It is also emblazoned with the personal signature, or CHOP, of Chiang Kai-shek, 
the leader of nationalist China. Jake's cap had a blank space where an insignia was removed. During his Flying Tiger days, he would have had a Chinese Air Force officer's insignia placed there, instead of the U.S. insignia, which they were forced to remove before going to China. Jack was played by Leo, a Jack Russell Terrier mix owned by Hollywood veteran Carl Lewis Miller, who explains how he met our little friend. All quotes in this segment are from Carl Miller. He came to me through another trainer who was in transit from Florida and couldn't keep all his animals at the time. So he just gave me Leo. Leo was originally discovered by trainer Bill Virgis, who discovered him in a Miami animal shelter. Due to this, his exact age was unknown, but he was not a young dog by any means by the time Gold Monkey came around. Miller suspects Leo got the Gold Monkey gig, his first starring role, because not many shows if any, were using Jack Russell Terriers in the early 80s. Donald Belisario looked at a lot of dogs, and I think he picked Leo because he was a different-looking kind of dog. Everyone was showing golden retrievers, etc., and he had the unusual brindle color, a kind of brown with black stripes. Leo was a terrier, just a mischievous, snotty, but little, lovable, cuddly dog. He wants to be with you and all that, but boy, they can sure get in trouble. The eye patch Leo had to wear for the cameras as Jack caused an unusual evolution in the dog's appearance. When we did the pilot, both of his ears were flopped down. The dog used to strain one ear as a radar to compensate for his eye not being able to see. By the end of shooting, that ear was straight up as opposed to the pilot where it was down. We take the time to train our dogs and position them like an athlete or stunt person. We train them to tolerate their equipment, whether it be collars or a harness. So we had trained him to leave the patch alone and tolerate it. But almost weekly, we could see the ear coming up higher and higher and higher. He didn't wear the patch all the time, just when they rolled the camera. It might just be 20 minutes some days and two hours the next. But every time we put that patch on to work him, you could tell he was constantly trying to figure out what was going on on that side. And that ear started working like radar. The one-eyed roll on Tales of the Gold Monkey was the first to let viewers put a name on a dog most had seen in the background of other productions. Leo's first screen appearance was on the 1974 film Conrack with John Voight. Before Gold Monkey, that dog was like Jack Elam or Dub Taylor of the movies. He was a character dog that you see in every project, but you didn't know his name. In The Blue Knight, 1975 CBS, he was a regular street dog that always pestered George Kennedy's character, Bumper Morgan. This dog would turn up in the darndest places at the right time to break the monotony or the silence of the scene. He did several appearances on M.A.S.H. as a Vietnam camp dog and was on Punky Brewster. He used to run the streets of the western town on Kung Fu. At one time or another, that dog appeared in just about every TV show, but in a bit part or in the background action. He made a good, bouncy, barky, stray dog. Little Leo died peacefully of old age. All my dogs grow old peacefully like actors, and when they get old, they just get older parts. Carl Miller was an animal trainer on countless movies and TV shows, including Magnum P.I., Cujo, 
and Beethoven. Miller's daughter, Teresa Ann, carries on the family tradition and is known internationally as a highly respected animal trainer, specializing in dogs. A special treat for listeners this podcast, I managed to track down writer-producer Tom Green, and he was more than willing to sit down and talk with me about Gold Monkey and other shows he has worked on in his over 40 years in show business. But today on Forgotten TV, he started in show business as a child actor, grew up to work behind the scenes as a writer on The Six Million Dollar Man, a writer and producer on Magnum P.I., Knight Rider, Swamp Thing, Thunder in Paradise, and of course, Tales of the Gold Monkey. Joining me by phone is Mr. Tom Green. Tom, welcome to Forgotten TV. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for, uh, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. So first, I mean, I've learned not to simply trust IMDb for facts, and particularly, <laughs> particularly Wikipedia. Um, and uh, I have read, have you read your IMDb bio? That is written at the this top of the... Is a, I have to get on there and do something about it. Let me explain that to you. Uh, what it was is this woman, and I'm not even sure if that's her real name, but I saw her, she, she was a fan of mine for years, and I think it may still be up there. And the reason I know who she is or whatever, she put together, I think, a fan website for my miniseries, Wild Side, and also for Swamp Thing, I believe. She wrote that bio. And I really need to go back and do some editing, major editing. Now, what, part of it is scary because it's kind of like a stalker because she has things in there, most of which is true. But the point is, who cares? You know, when it comes to Tom Green, you really don't want to know, very you know what color. Was... There are a couple of inaccuracies which do bother me. Uh, for years, was involved in um, rodeo. Mostly Ben Johnson, Roy Rogers actually taught me rodeo, but but I was never a rodeo. I was never what they call a permitted writer. I didn't go to the PRCA. I went as a celebrity, you know, and it was for charity. It was for Wish Upon a Star, Make a Wish. And then there was something there, and I have no idea what was there about because I have done voiceovers, but I never was the voice of Texas. <laughs> There's a thing in there about I think about I was the don't mess with Texas voice. Most of it is actually accurate, but doesn't need to be in there. So um, you had, I've learned, a long-standing relationship with Universal Studios. Uh, yes, if this information that I've seen is correct, that they bought a short film from you when you were only 17 years old. And this um, led to Yeah, a... I was, um, was, was, was with, it was made by me and two friends of mine uh, called Unacceptable. And what they did is they bought short films they packaged them all together, and then they could be rented. And in those days, you know, it was all real film. I mean, you rented 16-millimeter film. It w went to colleges and communities and stuff for, like, you know, midnight shows. There were a lot of them that were very famous. Uh, one of them, which many of your people may know or they can look at on YouTube, which is considered one of the greatest, called Bambi Meets Godzilla. You may have heard of that oh, one. Oh, yes. That's, uh, that's often included on the little short film. Uh, I remember having that on Laserdisc, and they would throw that right. out on VHS I think the guy's name was Newland who did it. Um, and there was a whole group of these kind of infamous um, shorts, that you and you could still get them. And I had one which, uh, as a matter of fact, that's my first, one of my first meetings with Steven Spielberg, who at the time... Hadn't he had just I think was filming Sugarland Express, so he hadn't really been, he had seen Unacceptable, 
and called me into his office and we got to be, you know, in the beginning anyway, you know, compatriots and friends. Uh, but yeah, so um, I made this film in high school and basically I had run as a student in high school, I'd run a lot of film festivals, you know, just high school festivals. And I would submit, I had a couple of other movies that I had made, short films, um, and a couple I had won some awards in. And, uh, but I noticed they always had this huge, thick manual of all the things you can't do. And I always thought the whole point of filmmaking, especially at that day, is nothing, there should be, you know, except maybe pornography or nudity or even vulgarity maybe or drugs, I don't know. But basically you should have free reign when it came to style and symbol. This thing had an insane amount of don't do's, don't do. So me and two friends of mine, so we did a film where we basically shot all this footage going down the list of the things that you shouldn't do and breaking every rule. And so we, everything you weren't allowed to do in a film, you know, the film shouldn't have a lot of scratches. So we literally started with scratches until all the emulsion is, you know, off of it. And, you know, and we shouldn't have any drug things or anything like that. And so we did this whole LSD, you know, uh, light show thing right out of 2001, split scan, you know, famous scene. And so we just broke every scene. And then it was three judges um, uh, watching it and commenting on it and constantly saying, oh, that's unacceptable, that's unacceptable. And it was for the San Mateo Film Festival. And we brought it there, and we just we were hoping to get like a horribly angry letter. How dare you? Instead, it won first place. And Christopher <laughs> Wood was there, and the, the audience went crazy, supposedly. Unfortunately, I wasn't there. And yeah, so uh, he bought the film. Wow, so this led to you getting a writing contract with them at only 19 years old? Yeah, actually, that led me into getting to meet all these wonderful executives. One, Peter Safier is one who I still see occasionally. Um, George Centuro, um, and all these others uh, that were there. All these In those days, you know, Universal was like a big family. Once you got involved there, you were there for life if you wanted to. You know, they had something like 30-hour shows that they were producing uh, a week, if you can believe it. So there was lots of room for stuff. And actually what that did is that got me to go in and talk to a lot of the executives. But what they let me do is kind of wander around the lot as an observer. And uh, at that time, they were not doing really well in feature films, and there were these wonderful cottages <clears throat> that were empty. And I actually went into one of those and uh, sort of set up shop. And so what I started to do was I got the mailroom guys to deliver to me uh, the day out of days, which means I could see where things were being shot so I can go there and see it. And also got them uh, to submit to me... Um, the first um, story outlines of different episodes of different shows. And then I began to make notes, real notes. I mean, not silly things, but real notes on them, on the story structure. They're very, they were very, very, very specific about, which is why the shows are so good. You know, good story structure, good outlines, you know, um, the script is important, characterization is important, motivation is important, all of that, rather than just effects, effects, explosions. And, so I started to do that, and then these producers started to call me, um, you know, hey, you're doing you know, really good. Now, at that time, I wasn't under contract. I wasn't even really officially allowed to be on the lot. I ended up getting involved, um, and um, I, I went to research and worked on a, a first a movie of the week, which sent, gave the world Judd Hirsch, called The Law, and I ended up actually um, being the dialogue director for Judd on the screen test and on the show, and uh, and ended up when it became a series of writing 
the stories for the first three episodes. And I think, as I said, I was the youngest person to get a direct uh, writer uh, contract. And you're right, 19 years old, still living at home. Right around the same time, you were started working on the Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah, well, that was interesting because um, how and why is kind of a funny story. But um, I actually went in and um, pitched how I got, you know, in those days, very rare now, freelance writers, they didn't have many, you would have maybe one story editor. You didn't really used to have a staff writer on a show. You had freelance writers who came in and pitched um, shows. And, uh, you know, that's dead now that doesn't happen. So as this kid, I went in there and I pitched uh, an idea, which was sort of based, (laughs) sort of based on a, I think a a book I had read and I was madly in love with, uh, I was always falling in love as a kid, but it was this great story about a kid who basically invents um, the next unbelievable um, energy where you put these two two drops of chemicals together and it was like a nuclear fusion. And of course the bad guys kidnap him and Six Million Dollar Man is going after. So I pitched this whole story to them and they loved it. And I was the youngest person and Alan Balter and Will Schiller said, well, hell, we won't tell the network how young you are. We'll just give them this thing you wrote. And if we get their approval, which they approved it, and then you have to get the net the network approved it. And I went off and wrote this screenplay, uh, this screenplay, the teleplay of it. And it was one of their highest rated and most popular episodes called Danny's Inferno. Yeah, that was a season and, four episode. Yeah. And, well, boy, you, <laughs> you impressed me. You really know your well, stuff what? more than I do. Uh, but because of that, a couple of days went by. And there was a movie that actually, I actually, all the writers under uh, um, contract had to work on. They had bought a movie called The Car. They were they shot it. And the reason I'm mentioning all this, they shot it in Kanab, Utah, and of course it was in the script. Even though they spent all that money, and, and to be honest with you, us other writers who are not making that kind of money, were so pissed that he bought this piece of crap. We had to read the script and try to do something with it. In fact, there's a great line if you watch the movie, un- one of the best unintentional laugh lines, which is um, James Brolin running back into his house, and. You know, it's that scene, wake up, everyone get out, wake up, you know, and getting the kids out and the wife out, you know, putting on the robes and stuff. We got to get out of the house. Why? The car is in the garage. Evil has visited the earth in many forms. Now it returns as the car. But they were, the reason I'm bringing this up is they shot it in Kanab, Utah. And at the same time, there was a man you may have heard of, it, it, because you're doing this, is Fred Silverman, legendary, you know, oh, Fred yes. Silverman was. And the, the irony of Fred Silverman, you know, is he ended up the only person in the world to become president of all three networks. We became, you know, he was a big fan of mine out of this Danny's Inferno, which he really loved. He also loved The Law, which, you know, I did some stuff on before that. And so he suddenly had this idea the other network was going to show the first TV showing of Gone with the Wind. But Fred Silverman was a genius. And what he said was, in those days, there were, you know, three networks, ABC, you know, NBC, CBS, and, and, of course, your local stations and PBS. And also, you know, you had your remote, but you also didn't have, um, you, there was no way to record a show or to watch it again or all the stuff we have now. 
So it was a big thing. And he knew that he realized that who controlled the remotes in his research? It's the kids, not the parents. The kids really controlled the remotes. Well, of course, the kids aren't going to know what the hell a gone with the wind is. And at that time, Six Million Dollar Man was the number one show in the country. So he suddenly said to Universal, listen, this is what I want. Um, I want you to make me a show. And he came up with the title. He said, I want you to come up with a show called The Bionic Boy. And uh, we'll make it a two-hour special. And so at Universal, to save money, which they always wanted to do, realized that they had all these crew and trucks hadn't left yet from Kanab, Utah, which is Zion National Park, basically. And so they came to me. And, and, and Fred Silverman, God bless him, said, this, you know, and he knew he wasn't easy. You know, this kid, and this is very funny. This is what I was always, they always said about me. You know, this kid who still lives at home. <laughs> that was how they all knew me. And uh, as a matter of fact, when they used to call my house, my poor mother, I, I didn't know they knew I lived at home. So when they called the house, my mother, any call that came in, she'd have to say, Tom Green's office. <laughs> you know, and her friends would say, are you crazy? What's going on there? Anyway, uh, so they came to me and they said, um, okay, this is all we know. It's going to be called The Bionic Boy and it has to take place in Kanab, Utah. And my family used to go camping there all the time. So I knew the area of Zion and all of that. Oh, and by the way, they told me, because Gone with the Wind is, I guess, going to come on within a month, we need the script. This was on a Friday. We need it. It's the second time this happened to me. They said, we need the script from you by, like, Monday or Tuesday. Two hours. Uh, A two-hour special $6 million man. And, of course, I stayed up day and night, and I was young. And I did it. I wrote it, and I, you know, made it take place that time and whatever. And uh, so that was the other one, and that gave me – I was had a – you know, the contracts in those days were like, I think, six or eight months, which they don't do anymore. And that gave me a term deal because I did it and it, you know, was this massive hit. And it actually ate into Gone with the Wind and did everything that Fred Silverman wanted it to do. And then that's when they offered me a term deal. And I, and I think, you know, I think it's in my bio. I actually worked with, uh, I was a um, director of project development only at about the age of 20 uh, for Robert Wise and Mark Robeson two famous directors, and then Robert Wise asked me to come in when he directed the first um, Star Trek. Star Trek, the motion picture, yes. And, uh, which is a whole nother, for a whole nother thing, I think, but mostly because they, this group of guys were trying to convince him to use computer special effects, uh, which had never been done before, and of course Robert Wise had done special effects on some, you know, Day the Earth Stood Still and many other haunting and all, some of, a lot of his films, and, um, even West Side Story had a lot of mat work, but also, you know, but it was all a lot of, there's mo- much more than you think. The motion picture uh, had more effect shots than uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, and in, I certainly than 2001. Yeah, and what happened is I, I was just a kid, you know, and I was seeing that, and I don't know, I think they, were, they weren't con artists or anything, but these guys were just way over their head, and the technology hadn't been invented. They were way ahead of their time in their dreams, but not in reality. And I'm the one who had to go to Wise, and they were actually, I think, shooting, had to shoot each scene twice, uh, different types of camera, there was all this weird stuff going on, and it was driving Robert Wise crazy. And I finally said to him, uh, you know, I love I don't remember, but I, I do remember, you know, sitting him down and saying, this isn't working. You're not going to get what you want. Go back to what you know. And I, being the geek, knew, and, and I also was a fanatic for 2001 The Space Odyssey. 
And so I was able to talk to Robert Wise, who knew all the stuff backwards and forwards about what he should do. And I believe there's maybe one shot from what the other guys did and spent all this money that, that retains in that film, which was interesting. Yeah, but, Star uh, Trek, the motion picture, that is a, that is a show into itself with the difficulties that were on that. It's funny for people to watch that now, uh, especially with, you know, I fear that with CGI uh, that it's taken precedent over story and over plot and over thought, over emotion. And it leaves you, there's something psychological deep inside you. It's like when you watch Lord of the Rings, if you watch Spartacus or Ben-Hur or, um, and you see, you know, hordes of tens of thousands of people, that's because there were hordes of tens of thousands of people. Uh, and you viscerally know that. And you're thinking, you feel that you're part of this unbelievable pageantry. Oh, my God, I'm there on the big screen where they actually went out with tens of thousands. Back when there was a cast of thousands. Yeah, literally. And that doesn't exist anymore. It's funny because a lot of the directors, I've talked to a lot of them. And I, did, I didn't. I read about J.J. Abrams. I've never spoken to him or met him. But... Um, a lot of them are trying to go back to what they call floor effects, you know, because there really is something that happens to you when you watch something that's a floor effect or is real as opposed, it's like, you know, in the mission impossible films and the whatever, where you see a car crash through the hundredth floor window on one building and then go through the sky and then crash into the window of the other building. And we all, everyone, because kids are, you know, everyone does video games. They see this. They know it's all effects. They know it's computerized. No one is going, oh, my God. But, you know, in, um, like in Knight Rider, we, um, Jack Yill, who did all the great effects, uh, the great stunts, except for very few occasions, live, uh, I was brought in way too late when they did the reboot of, six, of Knight Rider, and everything was CGI. It was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the directors were sitting in trailers, like, you know, in the other block. <laughs> no one was there. Um, and, you know, if you, I don't know, in, six, in Knight Rider, if you remember, when something had to be done with the car, Jack did this great effect. Not a big effect, it was fun. With You know, there would be the semi, and the um, ramp would come down and be sparking and everything on the road while it's still mm -hmm. running. And, you know... Kit would, you know, uh, race up the ramp while it was still running and go inside. Remember that? And then Absolutely. the actual place that April or whatever, or they actually worked on it, was this tiny little set that uh, duplicated the inside of a semi-truck. Well, when they did the reboot, it was something right out of um, uh, James Bond. It was, they spent millions, it was this massive set, and they had Kit on this giant gimbal that can go into all kinds of angles. I started counting, and I lost count after about 40 flat screens going all around, and it just, it was so big and so stupid, in my opinion, and it lost all of the whole point. And when Glenn Larson created the show, he was basically wanting to do a modern-day Lone Ranger. Kit was Tonto. And he was the Lone Ranger, at the end, even at the end of it, one, you know, who was not that masked man, but, you know, who was that man or whatever. And that was the concept of it, the loner with Tonto. And Tonto was both um, Silver the Horse. I, I mean, Kit was both Silver the Horse and Tonto. And uh, that was the point. And it was supposed to have a, a bit of, you know, just 
David Hasselhoff talking onto his remote watch saying, Kit, I need you. And then he'd come running, you know, just like Tonto or Silver, I need you would come running or Lassie would come running. But in this new version, uh, and I think anyway, this is my long winded diatribe about what I think is wrong with. It, it completely <laughs> lost the spirit of the original Knight Rider. Yeah, I did it with the Lone Ranger. Look at that terrible Johnny Depp thing. Same thing. And, uh, Wow, Wow West, if you remember that original series, one of my favorite series. Uh, and then when, in every one of these, when they redo them, they think they have to throw in hundreds of millions of dollars and do all effects in those days and even before that. You know, uh, There was both from the studio and the network, huge emphasis on story. You first would give them a synopsis of, you know, be like something you would see you know, anywhere, like a Netflix or Prime, you know, for, for a show you're watching, just one paragraph of what the show is about because which sounds easy but that's the hardest because they'd say if you cannot describe what this story is about in a paragraph you don't have a story so first you had to give them a synopsis then you go from the synopsis to a step outline you do a story outline and after story outline you would write a treatment which was basically certain you could publish that in the new york or whatever's a short story it was between 20 and 40 page story of done as, as a story, as a short story of the whole thing. And then once that was approved and changes, you would then go to a first, second, third draft, so and so of the teleplay. And because you went through those, you had a very, very solid, thought out uh, foundation of story. And I think that's why those shows, and that's why, you know, you do what you do and why it fascinates you. And it has a lot to do with that, of why people, because Unlike and there's some good stuff being done now, but most of it has to is not about story and it's it's more about situation and there's no construction to it and and uh, it doesn't have this 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 it's not as solid. There wasn't a competition. We all were there, you know, to make the product as good as possible. It's like a lot of chefs working on something. No one cares who's getting the credit or who's doing the job. And if someone comes up with a better idea, we all get excited because it made you know the dish we're cooking look better uh but the thing is is that we also understood which i don't see a lot anymore and in the sh and you you when you talk you you know I've, I've looked at what you're doing you're doing some great work by the way i love your podcasts and Thank uh you. you know you, you you really do your homework but you also understand the shows and doing that you understand if you remember that the shows all had you know um there used to be a um a, a, an expression that we used to use which was kojak wouldn't do that I don't even remember who Kojak. He must have ah, Kojak. You know. uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, which I'm I'm listening to his daily uh, podcasts now on YouTube. Um, he calls it uh, verisimilitude, which is uh -huh. the term they used. Of course, you're I'm sure you're aware of Superman the movie that Dick Donner was was big on. With, right. Is this something that uh, makes sense in the universe that we're presenting? Exactly. And you don't, well, it's jumping the shark or now what's become, you know, hiding in the icebox. And I finally yeah. saw that movie, which, again, as a Spielberg fan, I, Nuke the fridge. I, I couldn't, the crystal skull and, and you know, jumping the shark because that expression is, you know, what's his name, uh, um, should never have, he was water skiing in the scene. The fonts, and yeah. He, right. And he jumps over a shark. And at that point, everyone lost complete it just blew up and there suddenly was no more um you know happy days because that took it to a point which it also made people angry like why did you do this he would and that's what they used to say kojak would never do that you, you know there are certain things that the as a good 
showrunner and you know who's running on everything you know that your character wouldn't do certain things and if you have them do it it'll ruin the show some people say it's hiding in the icebox because of course indiana jones and that ridiculous scene which is all taken from a wonderful mickey rooney movie called um the atomic kid it isn't possible but he did it live through an atomic explosion to bring you the funniest love and laugh feast you can imagine while I was standing in the house there, just minding my own business, eating a sandwich, when all of a sudden, boom. The language is English, but he's talking at twice the speed. I'd say his basal metabolism has doubled. Starring that atomic kid himself, Mickey Rooney. When you see Mickey Rooney explode with hilarity as the atomic kid, you'll hit the jackpot in thrills and laughs. I have to tell you real quick, um, a interesting thing, Don Belisario, who was, and anyone will tell you, one of the hardest people to ever work with, but he was also, if you were lucky and blessed to work with him, you learned more than you could learn anywhere else. The man was an absolute genius. And I think because he was a perfectionist, you know, perfectionists can drive you crazy like a Stanley Kubrick. And, you know, he was like that, and he was great. But he did at one point, uh, if you ever watched the original Magnums, in the opening of... Season, I think, two was the first season I started producing the show. And the one thing you never did in a show is you would never have a character shoot someone. Uh, killing him was very, very unusual in those days. But if you had to kill him or even shoot him, you better show an enormous amount of, um, you know, uh, you're doing this for self-protection, you know. Uh, and it has to be very, 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 very justified. It has to go through all these censors. Well, do you remember the opening show and what uh, Magnum does to the Russian spy? Have you ever seen the sunrise over Maui or something? It has a title like that. I had nothing to do with that. I was one of the producers, but uh, Don Belisario wrote the show. But this Russian spy, they show the flashbacks in Vietnam. It was basically, again, the mentoring candidate, which I kind of stole from an episode of, of Thunder, which I wrote and directed, uh, quite honestly. I kind of stole the idea. But uh, one of the characters, TC, I think it was, had been um, uh, tortured and brainwashed in Vietnam. And at some point, you know, he gets triggered to do a, t- a terrible deed. And so now, you know, it's years later, and he's the guy who ran the, f- the helicopter and so forth. And, and it also turns out, if I remember that this Russian, I think might have killed Magnum's uh, love, maybe even his her fiance and some of her other friends and tortured them. There's a scene which is unbelievable if I remember where he actually takes one of the people, one of his best friends in Vietnam and cuts him in the artery artery, you know, in your thigh and, and he bleeds to death. So at the very end, they're at the top of uh, like um, Diamond Head or something and the sun's about to come up and the guy doesn't have a gun, the bad guy. And he turns to Magnum, he laughs, and he says, <laughs> you're not going to shoot me. You can't shoot an unarmed man. No, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'll be, you can arrest me, and I'll go back to Russia, and I'll have my caviar and champagne, and you'll still be here, and you'll never get me. And then, because he had said to his friend before he died, you're seeing your last sunrise. And he says, turn around and look at your last sunrise. And as he turns around, he shoots him. It was unheard of to do that. And everyone said it would change. But because... He was such a bastard, and because you knew that this was going to happen, he got away with it, you know. But he just, the point is, he just got to that edge. And it was beautifully directed and, of course, beautifully acted by Tom and beautifully written by Tom Belisario. But uh, 
the network went crazy, and they weren't going to even air the show, if I remember. And it ended, of course, getting massive ratings, and everyone thought it was great. I have plane to catch. If you are going to shoot me, do it now. You won't. You can't. I know you, Thomas. I know you better than your mother. Your sense of honor and fair play. Goodbye, Thomas. Do svidania. Ivan. Yes? Did you see the sunrise this morning? Yes. Why? Yeah, that brings us to Tales of the Gold Monkey, because uh, now you were a producer on uh, Knight Rider for the 1982-83 season, and you also came on to Tales of the Gold Monkey uh, about midway through uh, as a producer for for one episode and then came back for a couple more and did the last several. Um, So how was that when you were working on two shows at the same time, both being a producer? Well, actually, I'd love to, you know, say, oh, yeah, I uh, I have done that on other shows uh, where I've worked on actually two or three shows at the same time. That, when you were under Term Deal at Universal and they had so many shows, that was very common as, a, as, a, as well as writing. I was writing and on, uh, for, when I was doing, I guess, Magnum, uh, and they were trying to find their way on Knight Rider in the first season for a lot of reasons. And um, he was... Uh, sending me scripts and I was doing rewrites for him and I was doing memos and uh, he didn't always agree with me quite a lot and we would go back and forth. So I was actually doing that and a lot of times when it came to credits, both for actual writing credits and um, even directing, I mean I actually directed, a lot of people did this, you directed sequences or inserts or other things or um, and you didn't get credit for it and you didn't I had been on, actually, if you want to hear the story about what happened is when uh, Don Belisario was doing Magnum, he had to take a credit with Glenn Larson. And frankly, from the stories I've heard, uh, which seems to be, you know, Glenn at that time was one of the hottest producers in the world. At one point, remember, he had like five series on the air in one season. The only person ever had that happen. Um, He had Knight Rider, Animal, Manimal, Auto Man, and so he, I think, was working on Bob Bob Black Sheep. I think that was also a Glenn Larson and Don okay. Belisario. But Don Belisario was basically doing all the work. And frankly, which makes sense, Don wrote 100% the script magnum uh, from what I've been told and, and pretty well believed, especially if you read it and know Don's style. And But um, uh, Glenn Larson said to him, look, if I come in as co-creator on that show... Uh, the chances of it actually getting on the air go up about 300%. And Don, who was hungry, because this would have been his first created by show, um, said, okay. So Don, for the entire um, length of, of, of the lifetime of the show, Don had a uh, share of created by credit, and uh, Glenn Larson had absolutely nothing to do with that show. Uh, and, you know, he, he never showed up. I mean, he didn't want anything to do with the show. It was all Don's doing. So it, after that, Don created Tales of the Gold Monkey, and there's whole stories about that. And 
And of course, he did not copy it from, as you know, from Indiana Jones. But when Indiana Jones came out, it, the similarities were there, and that's what got it on the air. Well, a very strange thing happened to me, which happened to a lot of people. And I had been on Magnum for quite a while, and um, I was very proud. I did a show which airs all. It, I, I see when people, you know, you, you buy episodes or rent episodes, like for a dollar ninety nine now, you know, on NBC and other things like that. One of the shows that gets one of the most, of course, I don't see any money, even though we struck for this in the writer's guild. I don't see any money for this. But one of the ones that has one of the largest sampling of the people renting it is an episode I wrote called Foiled Again, uh, where Higgins is in a fencing match with an old rival with him. It's actually based on a story that I, I fenced, and it actually happened to me, where we're fencing with electrofoil. And except it happened to me, not the other person. And when the person who shaved me, I got not electrocuted, but I got a huge shock that knocked me to the ground. But in his case, he does that. It knocks the guy to the ground and he dies. And Higgins is saying, I did it. You know, I'm the one who killed him. But anyway, I was very proud of that episode and all that. And Don calls me into his office and basically says he wasn't happy with what I was doing or whatever. He fired me. It was on a Friday. And Don, you know, I was like the 220th writer-producer on the show by then. He was notorious for firing writer-producers. Uh, but I lasted quite a long time. But, you know, usually in those cases you screw up and they give you a warning and you do something bad. And, but in this case, he just simply, out of nowhere, and, and as I said, ironically, after I had done this episode, which I, I don't think they had shot it yet, but it really was a neat, and he cast and there's a whole other funny story about that, about the casting, especially um, uh, the Thackeray character. But anyway, um, I was on a Friday, and I remember being, like, shocked. And I, my girlfriend at the time, you know, she was afraid I was suicidal, which is ridiculous. <laughs> you don't kill yourself over a show. But she was Greek and very emotional. Anyway, I remember we went up to this famous place called Yamashiro's, and we went up to Yamashiro's, and she was the designated driver, and a couple other friends came by, and oh, well, I don't, and it wasn't that I was upset because I was under term deal, so I got I would get paid for the whole year, but it was like what it was confusion. What did I do? What did I do? What did I do? And so Friday morning, my secretary was cleaning out my office, and they were getting me another office further down somewhere. He was in the Hitchcock building, which was a whole other story and really fun. But uh, I was going to their office, and the head of um, uh, uh, of television at the time, Universal, calls me up in my office and says, "Tom, can you come up here? I need to talk to you." And I said, "Oh God, you're coming. You know, he's heard it. I'm screwed. They're going to try to get me out of my contract." And all, I guess all upset. And Richard Linheim, his name was, I remember the executive, very nice guy. And I sat down, he goes, now, Tom, he says, you're going to think this is crazy. He says, but I just got a call from Don Belisario. He really wants you on Tales of the Gold Monkey. I mean, he really wants you, and what he wants you to do is write this episode. He knows it's good, and once you write the episode, and it's good. He wants you to come in as producer, or one of the producers. <laughs> I was like, what? I, yeah, it just made no sense at all. But my good friend at the time, we used to play, well, I knew him from Star Trek, uh, and also, we were in a big bas uh, baseball league together you know, of all these actors, uh, and that Steve Collins was in the show. And as I said, he was a friend. And I loved that show. I used to, you know, Magnum P.I. was all shot in Hawaii, in Oahu. 
and I was the Hollywood producer, and I used to go back there on occasion, but I didn't get to go on a day-to-day basis, which, which I loved to be on the set. But he built these amazing sets on the back lot and interior, and you've seen the show. Look at those gorgeous sets. That was all shot on the back lot at Universal, except for the pilot where some of the shots were done in Hawaii. But that was all back lot Universal. And I used to hang out on that set because that was my thing, to be, to be able to be in, you know, movies and create reality of, you know, I don't like reality. I used to say to people, I only come to reality as a tourist, which is why I do what I do, because you could always be in your own little world. But um, so my whole point is, is that I love that show enough. And, you know, because I was pissed at hell at Dawn to do that to me. And I was confused that I wrote this episode. It was the one that I'm really proud of, which I wrote in two days called Force of Habit. And that's the one about his old girlfriend who's now a novitiate nun. Right. And they both end up in the cockpit. And interesting thing about that episode, if you notice, most of it takes place in the cockpit, right? Between him and her and Jeff McKay and, and of course, the dog. Do you know why that was? I ended up doing a lot of those. When you ended up doing shows and you were going way over budget and, uh, and th- that was one of the most expensive series ever done, Tales of Go Monkey, um, you, are, you have to then write what's called a ship in the bottle show. Yeah, a bottle show, right. Right, and that's where they're you're locked. In. Like they did in Magnum, we do with the Cow Burnett and Tom Selleck in a you know, in a bank vault. But you do a show where you're basically in one location. Now in Thunder and Paradise, I did a show which I also directed where they're in a lifeboat ripped right out of, of course, Hitchcock. And the reason for that is if you're in one location, because usually you shoot, you know, when you do a scene, it's about a page and a half that scene, uh, and uh, that's your day's work. Well, if you're in one location and it's like you're doing a play and you can sometimes set up two, even three cameras, you can do up to like, seriously, up to 15 to 20 pages of dialogue in one day. You can cut your, your time down in half. Instead of a seven, eight day shoot, you're shooting it in three to four days. Uh, and so your savings is enormous. So one thing that Don asked me to do, uh, uh, I don't, I think it was my idea, but I think maybe... The idea, just the idea that he finds a nun, there's a relationship between him and a girlfriend who turns out to be a nun. I think that may have been someone else's story, and I think they may have gotten credit. But anyway, but I basically had to write the whole thing. But what I also had to do was write it. So that's why, I don't know if you ever saw that episode, but I love that episode. But that was all mostly done in the cockpit where they're trying to fly because they're chasing after. She gets on the plane, and she's flying, if you remember, because her father was... Jake, Steve Collins, flying instructor. And he had no, and, and she used to dress up in things and impersonate. So at first, remember, he thinks she's pretending to be a nun. So I, there's a wonderful scene in the monkey bar where she's, he says, ah, you're a nun. I've always wanted to kiss a nun. And he grabs her by the habit and forces his tongue down her throat. And the mother superiors even, they remember, and everyone freaks out and he's laughing. And then suddenly he realizes, holy shoot, she really is a nun. But the next morning, you know, what happens is the, there's a China clipper which has all this medicine for smallpox to go to this orphanage, but it also has gold in it, and these people steal it. So she grabs onto the, she gets jumps into the plane, into his plane, the Grumman Goose, and goes after it. Basically, you know how that show did, and I did that show. You know, he said I've never, he never complimented uh, anyone. Um, but it didn't matter, as I said. If you worked with Don, you became, as a writer, you, you improved 700%, 1,000%. And he, he says to me, I want you to know we're shooting this first draft. 
and we may have to cut some scenes, you know, for time, a couple of things. He says, and he says, I've never done that before. Because, you know, his scripts, as you know, when you do rewrites, they're different colors. Because then you have to know, do you have the pink? Oh, that's great. But, you know, there's a pink version now. There's a yellow version. There's a white. There's a green. And if you don't have the green, you say, well, you're reading the wrong one because, you know, that's the next version. He says, this is the first time we're going to go out with a white version. Uh, I don't see any cuts or anything in here. And then he said, do you, would you come in? you know, as a producer. Again, in our business, you many times cannot have a sense of dignity. <laughs> just like, what do I? Yeah, sure. And I love doing it. It was one of the great experiences of my life. Uh, so then, so I went from Magnum to that. And while I was doing, I said, the last two or three episodes, Bob Senator passed away. And uh, I don't know if Robert Foster had taken over yet, but the studio had asked me, because I had worked before a night Rider, would I supervise some of the, um, you know, uh, and help with the scripts coming in to finish off that season, the night Rider season. Uh, and I had thought, and everyone else did, the Gold Monkey was going to go another season. And I said to him, look, uh, and Don even said, which was very nice of him, you know, hey, if we, if we come back, he didn't think there would be another season, which is another whole story. But he said, if we come back, would you come back? It's one of the producers. And I said, I'd be delighted. And, uh, but it didn't come back for another season, so then that's when I uh, was doing um, Gold Monkey and then the last three or four shows of Knight Rider at the same time. Imagine what that's like. And then, of course, went off to Knight Rider after that. What, talking about the producers then, um, what do you think about these modern shows and all the producer credits that, that, that come on the screen? One thing interesting is, is that in television, executive producer is God. The executive producer isn't, you know, someone's mistress or someone's, you know, banker or someone's dentist who put up the money. Executive producer is God. Ironically, in features, you can see as many as I counted one movie that had 18 executive producers. And that just means that they put in money or they got certain things done or they were someone's mistress or there's someone's husband or something and they, they got in there. Producer in movies is the person who is really doing the work. And as you know, there are line producers. You know what a line producer is? A line producer was very important, is the one who checks the pattern budget on a series. Pattern budget telling you exactly how much money you have for costumes, effects, music, casting, you know, this or that. And, a line, and the reason it's called a line producer is he checks the line. So in other words, if it says on one side, casting, you go over the line to the other side and it says you have, you know, $120,000 for actors, that one. And so that's why it's called a line producer, but they're not okay. creative. And then you have, of course, you know, um, supervising producer, co-producer, and all these others. And as I said, if you'll notice, there's almost always only one or two executive producers. And those really are like David, what's his name on CSI or whatever. You know, they're the, the head man or head woman. But that's, that's the difference. Now, what's happening now is that uh, as I said, in the days when I did it, you would have, like, for example, in Knight Rider, we had basically an executive producer who did some writing. It was Robert Foster. And then we had producer. We were basically writer, showrunners. We had myself and Rob Gilmer, who had also worked on Magnum, who, uh, well, that was it. That was just the three of us. And he was fantastic. Uh, and in those days, sometimes we would split where Robert Foster and Rob Gilmore would write an episode, but then they would be more involved in the casting and in other 
sections of it because it, simultaneously I'd be working and I'd usually then, I'm the one who would work with our story editor who was terrific named Janice Himmler. And uh, what I liked about her is she was very good, but she was almost RoboCop fast, but good. Usually, you know, anyone could be fast and write gibberish, but she was fast and good and, and we got along and we, um, so we were sort of the other team. But we also worked together, for example, you know, all the Goliath shows and the two-hour shows that we did. Well, I'll have you know that most of those were written in one day, <laughs> two-hour <laughs> shows. And how that would work is we'd all get together. It would be Robert Foster, me, Rob Gilmer, and Janice Hindler. And usually, for some reason, he would take us. There's a, it used to be a chain that's out of business now called Hamburger Hamlet. And we would go there for breakfast because I think they were, we opened very early, very early have breakfast, but we would have, of course, our um, no laptops back then. We would have our um, pen and paper, and we would what we call, we'd do a beat sheet. We'd say, okay, there's eight acts. Each one of you takes an act, because it was four. Each one of you take two acts. So let's go through, and, okay, act one, scene one. What's going to happen? Scene two, scene three, scene, and there's usually seven scenes uh, in an act, so okay, so that's okay. We got that. Seven scenes, act one. Act two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, Tom, that's what you do. Go away. Goodbye. So we wouldn't sometimes even know. <laughs> Mostly we would stay, but sometimes we wouldn't even know what the others were doing. And then each one would get two acts. We would go back to our offices, and this usually would go happen for some reason on a Saturday, I remember, over a weekend. And by the end of the day, by six o'clock, we were required to go back into the executive producer, Robert Foster's office with um, our two acts written. And so he would, and then he was doing it. So we, he would end up having all acts for all eight acts, all the scene, the whole thing done. And then he would, you know, kind of put it together and sometimes have to make changes. And the one thing that I love to do, and, and I think we miss in movies and in TV plots, I, I was just offered to do a, a horror movie a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I just read the script yesterday. You know, and it's just, it's not very good. And one of the big problems with it is, is that, you know, one great thing in movies is where you set things up in the first couple of acts and then it, you pay it off later. You know, someone finds a strange lighter or something and for some reason it's given the sticks in his pocket and you forget about it. And yeah, then in the last act, they use the lighter to save the world or whatever. You know, just things like that. That's great. And that's what we do. So, Robert Foster would always have me then go back on the script was done and add little things that, you know, pay off. And that's something I find really important that, you know, you, you, you keep bringing things back. Uh, Ibsen once said, you know, if in act one, uh, you see two pistols on the wall, you know, that by act three, someone's going to use them. Right. Know, this is, that's the idea. Yeah. So my, my whole point on the producing, so that's how we do it. Now there is no freelance writing at all. You staff, and they will staff sometimes eight, nine writers. And the, the agents then say, in most cases, okay, if they're going to be a writer, uh, they get a producing credit too. Now in our day, we did actually produce. So it was really hard because not only did I and the other producers do the writing, I was in all the casting sessions. I was in all the production meetings. I was in all the day-out-of-day -day breakdowns. I was in, you know, the uh, uh, many times, even though the uh, associate producer, we had a 
wonderful associate producer dealt in post-production. So in Foley and looping and ADR and everything. But many times we were there, we were involved with the special effects and Knight Rider. We did a lot of miniatures and a lot of other things. We were involved in, uh, not in the actual composing, of course, but we were in the scoring. And very important, we were involved in the final mix. And, you know, which can make or break a film. Uh, So today, uh, all these people who get the writer-producer credit, I doubt if any of them do anything more than, which is a lot of work, than, you know, get assigned to write episodes. And, uh, and then you have usually then uh, the supervising producer or the associate producers or the executive producers involved in pre-production and post-production. I loved as having been, you know, uh, a ham and an actor's kid. I really loved casting. I thought that was very important. And uh, that was one of, besides writing, one of my joyous things to do was be in the casting sessions, you know, and uh, you could make or break a show. And many shows, not that I was the only one, there are other great people that would do casting, but my point is, and I've made, I've made this mistake a couple of times, when you cast the wrong person, you could bring down a whole show, uh, you know, by the wrong person doing it. Uh, in television, you know, you don't have a lot of time to work with an actor, I think in one of the commentaries, uh, I told you about, um, what's her name, who, from uh, Sex and the City, it was one of the first things she ever did. Oh, Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall, who was one of the very first things she did on Gold Monkey. Yeah, I was wondering and, how she got that credit, uh, and starring Kim Cattrall, special guest star. Yeah, I think because she hadn't done a lot, and I believe... And you could look for the time, by the time the thing went into, um, you know, to be a post-production where we put the titles in, I believe Porky's came out. And, of course, her howling to the smell of men's underwear made her a star. <laughs> right, yeah, she, had, it, she um, had been in Porky's, that was from 81. Yeah, so, you know, she had done something, because I remember, as you know, and I talk about it in the commentary, she did not know her lines at all. And she was someone where we actually went through 10, 15 takes. And she had literally, if I'm not mistaken, flown in on the day when we were shooting. And she was in a lot of scenes. Uh, She had jet lag. And I think she had just come from the other production or she was doing another production. She may have been doing a mannequin or something after that. But that's why we rarely gave anyone that title. But her agent, she had enough clout because of this thing that she did. And I think it was probably Porky's that gave her that she was a good you know she meant well it wasn't her fault but she was over her head in the sense that she didn't read the script because she didn't have the time and she kind of ran in to do this she loved she had read the script once and she loved the part uh and uh uh i co-wrote that with i believe that's one of the ones i co-wrote with jim geiger uh not jim geiger george geiger but um uh there's a scene in there which is interesting to talk about takes where uh, she's fighting. The idea is she had gone to college with uh, Kate, Caitlin O'Haney, who was, I don't know why, she, she should have been a massive star. I mean, Caitlin O'Haney and Don Belisari was a genius to cast her because she had, she had, it was like that Woody Allen movie, Purple Rose of Cairo, where he comes, you know, the yes. actors come out of the screen. I mean, she came out of a 1939 uh you know, Key Largo or something. She had the, she put on that wonderful mid, mid Atlantic accent yes. and she had that look 
that 1930s look, and she was remarkable. But anyway, and now she's, you know, Kim Cattrall thinks she's a singer in this podunk monkey bar. She's actually, you know, a spy. But anyway, and she can't tell her that. And Kim Cattrall is now a famous journalist who goes all over the world, you know, interviewing famous leaders. And they get into a big argument. And Kim Cattrall, I think, had given her an ashtray from the White House because she had interviewed Roosevelt. And the scene is supposed to be where um, uh, she gets really angry and is, gives this speech of screaming at the Kim Cattrall, I mean at the um, Kate Lona Haney character, and she picks up an ashtray and throws it, and it breaks. You know, and, or this was, a, it was something, the ashtray had some sort of importance. But the point is that every time she went to throw the ashtray and do the line, uh, she screwed up the line. They had to get in a, she had another ashtray. Now, you know, a prop man is going to get maybe, oh, no. always have duplicates, but you're not going to have 32 ashtrays. So I don't know. And I think I wrote this in the commentary. It got so bad that we ran out of ashtrays. And so if you watch it carefully, when she goes to throw the ashtray, uh, she has to pantomime. There's nothing there. <laughs> and then they just We put in the sound of broken glass. But yeah, that was um, uh, Kim. It was a... Really, it was a very strange episode. That was the one, you know. Yeah, we that had was. A, it was based a, on a uh, transvestite, actually. It was based on a Magnum PI episode. There was uh, the, an episode called that, the Jororo Kill. Yes, right. Very and good. In fact, it was adapted I to. I think Gold this Monkey. one. I think it's a joke. We called this Nakajima Kill. Right. It just hit me. I think that was That's the right. title of it, which was. Yes, you're absolutely right, and um, it was funny because. Um, we had a, an incident, it was really strange because we had all of these cross-dressers, uh, these, these, uh, well, not cross-dressers, but, you know, professionals who dress as women come in to audition for that. And, of course, his, the voice was dubbed by a woman, which I always, well, I guess you had to do it because some of the actors actually had wonderful female, vo- uh, female voice impressions, but we used a woman's voice for that. But, um, yeah, that, that Kim, uh, at the time... Uh, she she was very, very, very serious about her craft. And the one thing about her, and I knew other people who worked with her, and this isn't really a bad thing at all, but I noticed about her is I didn't see any... She seemed so concentrated on her work that there was no sense of humor. And you know how you say things to people in a joking way and you think they're going to take you serious, you know, they're going to know you're joking? We had to tell you we had to be very careful because if you said something to her as we do jokingly, like, you know, oh, yes, you know, I'm Adolf Hitler's daughter. I mean, whatever it is, we did something silly, which anyone's going to laugh. They know you're sitting. She was very, um, re, you know, everything was very realistic and everything was um, uh, literal. And uh, she would go, and it wasn't that she was stupid or naive, but she was very serious. And she just believed that people always spoke that way. And the bad part was, is that Steve Collins and Jeff McKay, especially, were, um, total practical jokers and i had to finally give them a talk because they almost had her in tears <laughs> and they didn't mean it they didn't realize that she took things so literally anyway we um let's talk a little bit about how the the tone of the show shifted and i know now of course that the original intent of the show as you've covered is uh really is a, a period character drama and not an imitation of raiders of the lost ark which is what most people now, when they recall Tales of the Gold Monkey, that's what they say. Oh, yeah, that was the show that was like Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Yeah, well, actually, and Don Belisario was doing To Have and Have Not. Exactly. And, or Only and Angels Jeff Have McKay was Walter Brennan, and Caitlin O'Haney was, my brain, you know, Humphrey Bogart's wife. Lauren Bacall, and, and of course, uh, Jeff, um, uh, Steve Collins was Jeff McKay, and uh, Roddy McDowell, who one of the great experiences of my life is getting to know Roddy McDowell. What an amazing human being. But anyway... He was, uh, you know, Paul Henry or uh, what's his name from Casablanca. I mean, that was who they were all supposed to be. All these period what, films, right? It's a, it was a, yeah. to, an homage to those movies. A homage to Key Largo, Have Have Not, all those kind of movies. Uh, the one, the very first one, you know, you know how to whistle, put your fingers, your your lips together, and blow. All those great Bogart, Lauren Bacall, those kinds of film noir, Warner Brothers films. And what happened was he did this incredible pilot, uh, if you've ever seen it. I mean, it's, it is a feature. It should have been released as a feature, in my opinion. It's just brilliantly done. And, and, and in that one, the apes come off terrifying. It's not, you know, cartoon time at all. And they're beautiful. I remember going on the set, and I just couldn't, you know, you're right next to these people in their ape pod. And it reminded me of the genius of 2001, The Space Odyssey, you know, the... Uh, it, it had that for a television show. It had that kind of detailing. Yeah, but the close-up uh, and, makeup and was very well ABC, done. Unbel- and I'm telling you, I was there on the set, staring right at them, and I thought I was looking at apes. And the body of costuming was amazing. And they got, as Kubrick did, they got dancers uh, who were almost anorexic, so that they can get that kind of body structure. And so when you get someone that thin and you put those on, then um, what happens is, is that you end up uh, um, uh, uh, being able to actually show muscle tone and things, and you don't think it's a man in a suit. I'm just forgetting his name, but he played Moonwatcher, the main ape in 2001. He wrote a book about it, Memories of Moonwatcher, which I really recommend. And, uh, you know, he talks about that. But the point is he did this film, and it was fun because I had worked with John Hillerman, of course, on Magnum, I also worked with him on The Law with Judd Hirsch, and I did, um, a, I, I, what was the one with uh, the Bogdanovich that, uh, I didn't work with him, but I was on the set a lot, so I was able to, and we became really good friends. And he was in that, if you remember, playing the Nazi. Uh, and ABC said, no, you know, we don't want to do the show. And then Indiana Jones came out. Now, you know, ironically, of course, everyone knows that Tom Selleck was supposed to be Indiana Jones. But when Indiana Jones came out, of course, ABC jumped at it and gave them gave them the thing to do this. Now it's a little confusing because you bring up something, and I've been to many conventions and you know, a lot of people. And I've done a lot of interviews, and of course I did the box set, and and everyone always asks these questions, and we all get different things. So I'm not sure how it worked, but I do know that Don did not want to go for um, cartoony types of things. For example. He used to tell us, I never want to see the scene where Jake falls into a pit with spike bamboo coming up and then water rises, <laughs> you know. And unfor- I never want to see him in, in, in uh, um, quicksand, you know. I never want to see him, and this was before, you know, the famous I hate snakes. I don't want to see him in, you know, a dungeon with snakes. I don't. He didn't want to go that way. He wanted to go the Key Largo have and have not way, which which is what we did later. I mean, uh, but this network pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. So there are some episodes, and it's very funny because... 
and it's not we very weren't. many. It's uh, actually the count on those was uh, maybe maybe three episodes yeah. past past the original movie were li- were that way. Absolutely, you're very you're very perceptive, and that's because it sometimes you know he just got tired and he said okay, and they weren't terrible. But there was one I think called Eight Man or something like that. Uh, this was before I was on the Ape show. Eight Boy with Shane Sinico. Eight Boy. I remember I even said to him he was getting all upset, and I said to him. I said, well, you know, Truffaut made this. You're just doing Truffaut. And he loved Francois Truffaut. You remember yes. Truffaut did the movie. And so that's kind of what I <laughs> so can't, You can't, you know, Belisario is, is genius level. So he, he, you know, went, well, and then he looked at me and he goes, I love Truffaut. Don't F with me with that. <laughs> he said, that's nah, not going to work. He said, good, good try, Tom. <laughs> but he kind of did that. But then we really pulled... And I think uh, the one that he said, I, first thing he said, I got to get out of the jungle. So, of course, that's why he did, which he didn't like as much, but that's why he did the one on the Queen Mary, because that was, that was right before I came on to the show. And um, he said, he says, that can, that'll let me reboot, because most of that took place, if you remember, on the Queen Mary and not in the jungles, not in Bora. He called it Bora Gora. This was right. basically Bora Gora. And um, then we came back, and it, with force of habit, really was the one that got him back on track, and he was really thrilled. Uh, and Because, for example, which I say in the commentary, in which he told me once, um, and a lot of people have said, people one they consider to be the most... Uh, and some I've seen on, on Internet, some sent me there are people who disagree, to be the best and the most um, generic, the, the one that really shows iconically what... Tales of Gold Monkey should be is I just forgot the name of it, but it's the one with um, Roddy McDowell oh, and he la- is going to be guillotined. Yeah, Last Chance uh, Louis. Last Last Chance Louis, and uh, I, and I wrote that with George Geiger, whose wife was French, so there was a lot of French. Oh. In fact, I we fought the network. There's a scene in there which is interesting because when he goes to trial, what George and I wanted to do was. They don't understand French, and they're up in the galley. And that set, by the way, was based on actual drawings of what a French, because, you know, the people were on way up on a second, um, like, balcony. And they actually, if you remember, built all that. It was really fascinating. So you have to look way down at these, you know, at the actual trial. And what I wanted was, because, of course, they're all speaking in French, the lawyers and the judge, and when the judge sentences, I, I didn't want you to hear any word but guillotine. And of course, you know, that's when Steve or Jake go guillotine and they realize that's all they have to hear. And he screams, no, Louis, remember, wonderful scene. Uh, uh, and uh, James Fargo directed that, did, did a great job, who did a lot of stuff with Clint Eastwood, by the way. But anyway, um, he was actually the assistant, uh, assistant director on Jaws, a little bit of trivia there. Anyway, um, two episodes as well. and then the network didn't want us to... Um, you know, yo, you can't do that, you know, and we did, and no one cared, but, you know, this, but that, I think that there's so many sequences in that, so many things in that that have a maturity to it, and are so, I mean, even the beginning of the scenes with, uh, when he kills his rival, now, I, uh, there is, I think I say this in the commentary, but there is a great moment in that, which has a wonderful little story, which many of your people may not have listened to the commentaries or seen it, in the beginning, because, you know, Roddy McDowell, this guy comes off the ship 
off the clipper and he just walks over to him, takes out a gun and shoots him in cold blood. And, um, or you think it's him who shot him, but he dies. And when he explains why he hates the man so much, if you remember, uh, I had a character, which is a whole other story, which was played by Gerald Hyken, named Moliere, who was the French pornographer. And if you remember, he's uh, in the background, he's playing a, a pornographic silent, yes. or, uh, a silent film of Alice <laughs> in Wonderland. And everyone, and of course, they're laughing, and there's that wonderful line, which where Roddy says, oh, they've come to the Tweedledum Tweedledee scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, which, of course, the network went crazy. We actually brought in actors who, who, if you listen carefully in French, and what they're saying is really dirty, because we have a Tweedledum and Tweedledee and an Alice, and they're having an orgy. In it, he talks about how this guy, how he had uh, turned on his battalion and and then ran and as he watches the Germans coming in, because he told them where they were, and he watched them all get slaughtered and killed, if you remember that scene. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a remarkable thing on his close-up. This is, and that's in the commentary, so you'll know this, but you know, his, um, he tears up, yes. and his tear comes down, and it goes down halfway down his cheek, and it stops there, and then he wipes it away. And it's in a close-up and beautifully shot so that you can actually see the tear and all that. Well, there's a very funny story behind that. Margaret O'Sullivan was a, was a rival young actor uh, at the day when Roddy McDowell, as you know, of course, from How Green Was My Valley and everything else. He, was a, he started as a very young actor. He hated Margaret O'Sullivan because he, he thought she was, you know, always, I'm the best, I'm great. And Roddy McDowell always cried, and she would say, well, I can cry better than him. You know, and then so she would say, you know, he'd say, well, I will cry. Tell me when you want to cry. And she would say, well, I can cry. Do you want, say to the director, do you want the tear to come out of the left eye or the right eye? And that always got to him. And then he went to the director and he said, I'll tell you what, do you want the tear to come all the way down my cheek or do you want it to stop halfway? And the director never dating. So he always wanted to do that. And I'd known that story. So when I wrote the script, that scene, I actually wrote into the direction. Um, I wrote, you know, a tear forms in his eye. It falls halfway down his cheek and stops and he wipes it away. And I got a call at three in the morning from Rodney McDowell because he was up late and he had re- finally read this script. He, was, he said, I can't believe it. How did you know? Oh, I get that. <laughs> I said, well, we'll get an optical. No, I can do that. And sure enough, in that scene, he did it. Do you see that scene? He cries in the tear comes halfway down his cheek and goes away. But the whole episode, remember, that's, of course, where Steve met his wife, um, or his ex-wife now, sadly, but um, Faye Grant. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she gets killed, which was in, there's a whole scene in Vietnam of 1939, and uh, and we do the guillotine, and there's a scene, you know, it was a very powerful episode. It was a very and, surprising uh, development when she's killed midway in the episode. You really don't expect that. Well, you see, again, you're being very perceptive, and uh, there's an interesting story behind that. I have a thing about I will not kill women in anything I write. I don't like to see women killed in film. I don't like to see them beat up or raped or any, you know. Uh, and I actually turned down very lucrative jobs at Paramount when I was there because I wouldn't work on some of the horror films, writing and other things. Well, when I worked on the story, and basically we were doing Tales of Two Cities, is, is the, sort of the idea of the whole show with George Geiger, uh, who was a 
you know, I think up to a master's or whatever. Him, brilliant, brilliant person and very talented. He was quite involved with Simon and Simon and other things also. But anyway, um, well, I had a huge argument with George Geiger, my, who I wrote it with, saying, you know, I don't kill women. I can't kill a woman in a film. I can't do it. I'm sorry. And can't she just be hurt or something? And he was absolutely right. You know, no, no. If you want to do this right and with the drama, she can't come back. She has to die. So the only way I was able to do it, was, <laughs> I said, okay, George, you write the scene where she dies, you know, that scene where they're in there. And I never want to see the scene and I'm not going to go on the set. <laughs> I'm crazy. So he wrote that scene and we did sort of a, um, uh, what do you call it? A, a, a right out of Psycho where we kill her off. You didn't expect that. You didn't expect the bomb. You didn't expect any of that. And also something interesting about Faye we interviewed about 20 French actresses who had the accent, they could talk like this, and then Faye came in, who had that amazing face, an amazing look. Uh, and, you know, you wanted someone you fell in love because he falls in love with her. So, of course, you always have to find an actress who we're going to fall in love with, right? And when she walked in, everyone fell in love with her. And she goes, hello, my name is... Very happy to meet you all. And she did the line, she did the whole thing, and we hired her. And she stayed in that for a while. And then it was very funny because there's a scene in there that I really love where she falls in love with Jake in a in a hotel room. And I believe I could be wrong that at that point I I still believed that Faye was French. And she read the scene and she came over to me and she says I, can I speak to you at all? And then when I came over, she said, you nailed it. That's the best scene I've ever read. <laughs> she got so excited. She started speaking in a regular voice. And um, uh, she was a valley girl. She grew up in the valley where I grew up. And uh, But she was so good in that part. Yeah, um, and then she but, would be seen two months later on uh, the V miniseries. Oh, her career went into into um, stratosphere. Um she did V, she did a bunch of other stuff, and then, I don't know, she went to Broadway. And, of course, then we won't go into, you know, the controversy and all the other stuff, but um, it, in, the commissary, in, the commissary, in the commentary and all, it's a little embarrassing because I was always so proud. I'm the one who was basically responsible for getting them together, and I, you know, I remember talking to Steve and having lunch with him about her, and they went off to Bora Bora, actually, after the show wrapped. Yes. And... And he told me, and I think I have this in the commentary, he told me that um, in, they replayed the scene, and in that, uh, she lives. <laughs> so her character right. came back. While they were in Bora Bora, they replayed. And they were together for 22 years, yeah, which in Hollywood is a miracle before things When they were know, in Bora Bora, that is when the news broke that the show was not going to be renewed. That's right. Exactly. And that was that's a whole other story because this show could have been renewed and everyone expected it to be renewed. And I've spoken to executives at other networks who were banging their head against the wall saying, what the hell are we going to do to counter-program? It was a very, very popular show with people. And I believe for many complicated reasons, it was Don himself who kind of pulled it. Um, Just got tired Nothing of to do with, with the ABC. show, nothing to do with us, nothing to do with the quality of the show. I think it had to do with a big fight with ABC. Now, on the uh, talking about dealing with the network, 
Um, yeah. I've always wondered about this. Now, Reverend Willie and his blessings ah, time for blessing. was a running gag uh, yep. in the very first pilot movie. And in most of the episodes, it makes an appearance, uh, even in the earlier time slot when it was on on Wednesday nights. Right. Of course, we know about two thirds of the way through, they moved it to Friday night. And I right. don't know if you know why they did a boneheaded move like that and put it in the uh, same time slot that uh, the third season of Star Trek got put in. Uh, well, I have that experience to answer that real quick. The insanity, you know, now it's a lot different, but of course in those days, you know, you're, you were competition as two other networks. And they many times had this very stupid idea and they ruined many great shows because of that. And their idea was Blitzbrig. In other words, for, and it was the same with Gold Monkey was getting all this great press and, and, all, and suddenly all these fan clubs are coming up. So what the network will do, what you should do, is keep it where it is and build it and build your audience. And people in those days were even, you know, in those days, as you know, this is an interesting thing. I think I mentioned this in my keynote speech thing, which people can get on um, YouTube if they want. But... Uh, the people who actually um, were the most sought after, and we actually got, frankly, you know, the best salaries, are those who are known to be able to create what we call eight o'clock shows. And uh, do you know why that is? Do you know why eight o'clock was so important? Well, it was at some point. It was the family hour where they would consider most of the the kid audience would be watching along with the parents. Well, that's part of it, but the other one, and a lot of people listening are probably think I'm crazy, but. You have to kind of understand the times. People would start, they would watch the news, but they would switch channels at 8 o'clock to their favorite show. And oh, most the of them did not have remote control. And they literally, if you were on channel 7 at 8, you stayed till channel 7 until the news at 11. Right. So you had to have something pretty damn, you know, uh, enticing that people are going to switch to at eight o'clock because then, you know, you were going to have your nine and 10 o'clock. Isn't that wild? And so, and gold monkey, which was an eight o'clock show. Mm -hmm. And I think it went to 10 o'clock at some point, if I'm not mistaken. You right. Were nine o'clock is my time frame because I'm in central time. Right. But uh, what I'm saying, basically, whatever is the first hour of, of prime time, what would be considered prime time. Right. <clears throat> Go monkey or, or night rider was like that. Magnum was like all the show, you know, basically all the shows I did were eight o'clock shows. And uh, those were the star shows and they wanted to get the best people working on them and they wanted the best show. But what they would do is many times it would blitz break a show. Like if gold monkey, Ooh, here's a show people like, so let's not just leave it where it is and let it grow. Like, you know, there's stories about shows like The Waltons, which, you know, which was disastrous for the first year or so. And they just didn't. And there's a long story of why I won't go into why they kept it, but they just kept it. And, they, you know, and it grew. And Mary Tyler Moore, All in the Family, these old shows that became huge hits all have the same story. Um, but anyway, uh, so with Gold Monkey on that part of your question, they were extremely um, cognizant about let's, you know, here's our big weapon. So if we need to, you know, fight an enemy on a Friday night, let's, you know, get the horses out and trailer the, <laughs> the weapon over there for a while. And it never works. You don't do that. Your audiences are very loyal and they get very pissed. And in most cases, they're, it's not that they're bright, not bright, but they will then assume, I, got, I can't tell you how many letters we got just thinking the show was pulled. They don't know it went to another yes, time where, slot. Yes, where is it? It's not here. Right. 
And okay, I guess it's gone. Okay, well, enough of that show. And when it comes back, it's hard then to get them back. This is a problem I had on Wildside, which was, which I'm very proud of in the sense everyone loved the script I wrote. And uh, you know, I give it to my my father. It's gonna, this is going to sound kind of weird and something out of the Travel Channel, but you know, Ghost Adventures. But you know, I I think my father was there and he had passed away with me because you know, how do you write a? Well, I always was fast, but I was so inspired in writing that I think and but anyway they loved it so much and when the first and the reviews of the first show from everyone were huge and uh, uh, for people they, what they did they had an advanced screening of the show and so the reviews came out before the show came out so the network said wow we have something and everyone is saying that even if you don't like westerns and if you're not this it's you know this is a show that's going to go on for 12 years and people are going to love they're going to love these people and blah 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 so what did they do? They put it so it was ironically opposite uh, my old show, Magnum. In fact, some of the shows I produced, I was competing against myself. And a little show at the time called Bill Cosby, which was, of course, the most, the most powerful and the highest rated show in the world at the time. And um, so that's your answer is, is that they were not good at knowing how to nurture a show, you know, keep it where it is. Give it some time. Uh, you know, flash in the pan stuff um, always is good for a little while. Then you notice that then the ratings drop. And it's true of celebrities. It's true of singers. It's true of so many things that if it flashes too fast in the beginning, it's like flash paper. It disappears too quickly. You want to build a foundation. And uh, the networks can do that now with this whole different world now of Netflix and, uh, you know, Prime and uh, Hulu and Amazon and all that stuff, you don't have to do that because they, they do 10 shows and then it's mm-hmm. out there and then you select when you're going to see it or if you're going to binge watch it. And, of course, you know, they still have their ratings. Every time you watch a show, as you know, um, that clicks to them so they know how many people watch and when they watch and so forth. So they're still basically doing a Nielsen rating in, in a way. But it has a chance to build uh, because people, um, it's not on 8 o'clock on that one Thursday and then, you know, you may never see it again. And, of course, back then, no one, no one you, you had to watch it at the time. Uh, it's amazing when you think about when actual, uh, and first there were three-quarter inch tapes, but then when VHS and Beta, or basically VHS, which took over, came out and you could actually record shows was... Basically, and I believe uh, early to mid '80s, and also something else which was interesting is is that I don't know if people realize that the original VHS machines you can do that cost over a thousand dollars, and every tape was about twelve dollars. Oh, I, I well remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you do. Oh, yes. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. And it, it's like computers, you know, that cost that what they cost and what a computer can do now costs. But yeah, I remember. That uh, now you had I, I hopefully you remember you had another part to that question yeah, about uh, Willie Reverend Willie and his blessings. Oh now, yes, yes. What, what kind Willie of notes Pembaum. did you get on that? I mean, surely the network had something to say about uh, time for blessing. Well, interesting. There's a very good question, and there's a very funny answer to it. The network never knew what blessings meant. They never got it. They literally thought that it was time for him to bless to actually do a sign of the cross. Now, remember, he wasn't Catholic. He was, uh, 
Dutch something. Yeah. You know, he came up with it because, of course, if people don't know who we're talking to, he was a Nazi spy. But what blessings were also, if people don't right. understand what you're talking about, he shtooked, as we would say, you know, all the native girls. He was a horn dog. You know, he was. Um, okay, I was. I was Harvey a kid Weinstein. and caught 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 on that from the first now, episode. So, do you know that in one episode that I wrote, and I remember the network, they're so crazy about things. I have a funny story too about their censorship. In Force of Habit, which is one I, you know, which I wrote. Um, the, actually, the girl who played this native girl I just saw, she has become a huge um, celebrity, oh, and yeah. I think she's involved in all kinds. She's very wealthy and doing incredibly well. Wasn't that Nia Peoples? Yes. Right. Very good. Uh, and I remember I brought her to my office. Uh, she was gorgeous back then, too. That's the whole point. Remember, she said, and because she's saying this when the, the mother superior, now that's a very interesting story, too. Elizabeth Huddle. I wrote the part for her. She was on Broadway and she was out here in a brilliant little one woman show called Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All to You. And I saw the show where she played her mother superior. And it's a remarkable show. I think she was not at least nominated for a Tony. And so when I was going to do this, I wanted, uh, you know, it was just supposed to be the nun. I said, uh, uh-uh, I'm bringing Elizabeth Huddle in. Uh, you know, to, and I wrote that part for her, you know, because she shows exasperation and everything so well. Now, there is a scene in there, it's specifically about the blessing, where um, the mother superior keeps talking because she, she keeps thinking that, you know, that he's a minister and she keeps asking him about, we must do pray and we must do this and what do you think? And, yeah, and of course, you know, he's the father and she, even as a mother superior, he is he is still the boss. And remember, so she asked Grex to him and all that. And uh, at one point, she, the little native girl comes in and says, time for blessing? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we, do, we do blessing later. Oh, no, I'd like to do blessing now and all that. And <laughs> Mother Sabir says, oh, how sweet. So, yeah, yes, I, I give blessing to all the native girls. And then I don't know if you remember, but at one point, Mother Superior says, so... How, what exactly, which book or what exactly is the, you know, the part of the Bible that he does the blessing? You remember, she then whispers it into her ear, which she actually does. And then we have this huge clap of thunder. And then she comes running out of, (laughs) which is actually the very first shot we did. I remember she comes running out of the church and crosses herself with exasperation when she tells her what she did. Now, the funny part about all that is the network reads that and watches it and still has no idea why she's reacting. They never knew what blessing meant. Well, because it's an old joke, you have to know the continuity of, of the story. Right. To now, be to tell you what's funny is they didn't know what the blessing was, even though it seems pretty obvious, wouldn't you say? I mean, obviously, of course, now, of course, it's quite timely, isn't it? But anyway, uh, they. Um, there is a scene after that I'm very, very proud of, and I give them, and I give Harvey Lehman, who directed it. Uh, and every time I see it, I cry. And I wrote it thinking they're never going to get this right. That even after that, when they get to the realization that, uh, you know, her novitiate nun and uh, Jake and the, and the rest of them, because there's this huge storm, that they're in huge trouble. Do you remember? There's a moment, and there's no dialogue at all, where... Yes. Um, she walks into the church and it's leaking and she goes to the altar and she starts to pray. And then he comes in and it's all done with body language. And at first 
it's like she wants nothing to do with him, but she realizes, you know, prayer is much more important than, you know, vice. And they then join forces to pray. All done with just music and that. And I cry, and and I give, you know, Harvey Lehman and the actors all the credit for that, which was really beautiful. I think that may have also gotten to the network because they didn't understand, well, if he had done something terrible, why is she? And I think she actually holds his hand or something as they pray for Jake and, and for her. And, um, which I think was, was quite interesting. There's an interesting side note because, and I think I mentioned this in an episode called Bora, Gore or Bust, uh, in the commentaries, but, um, the network was so insane and had no sense of humor, or whatever. I think it was partly my fault. Well, I had created this character of Gerald Hyken, who, and he was in several episodes as the French pornographer. And it was funny because he was a very religious person as a human being. And I said, Gerald, and he had been in some other shows of mine also. And just, he's a great character actor. And he felt weird being the pornographer, actually. And I said, listen, in your next one, I'm going to have you as a priest. And, to, and, and, so, and I did. In Wildside, he played a character named oh. Father Cruel, who was a blind priest, actually. He was brilliant, and he was in most of the episodes. He was a regular, so I gave him what he wanted. But in the Borgora bus, he comes in with a bunch of prostitutes. But he says that there are women from the Champs-Élysées, you know, I mean, from the Moulin Rouge. And, you know, and so they, they had all these beautiful girls in dresses doing the can-can. And it was funny because... <laughs> uh, and it was, a, I forget, this wonderful director who did that one was also an actor. He was one of the regulars on Hogan's Heroes. Ivan actually. Dixon, yeah. You're amazing. You're amazing. Ivan Dixon, exactly. He, he directed that episode. And I was with Ivan, and I think someone from the network was there. And, we were, and the thing is, is it was amazing because if you remember, they think they've discovered like gold or palladium or something. And so, the, the, you know, we had the money then. It becomes a boom town. And every shyster, everything in the world is out there selling stuff, and all of these minor wannabe prospectors are coming in, if you remember. And, it was, and then what we do, which is wonderful, is they build all of these, like, you know, booths and things of people selling. And then there's a scene where uh, there's a huge fight taken right out of, um, you know, John Ford, the quiet man, uh, where they fight and just tear down the whole, all the booths and everything. It's a great scene. That was but incredible anyway, for, uh, for an episodic show. The, the the breakdown of how that worked uh, as you as you relate in the commentary. Yes, it was incredible. I mean, anything we wanted, we got, uh, and dealing with the best, um, absolutely the best, uh, uh, you know, production designers and costumers, uh, tutories who I used in Wild a bunch of other stuff was uh, who passed away and sadly was one of the most masterful and famous costumers, even everything was done brilliantly. But the point is, is so when we'd have these big scenes, some of the people from the network would love to come down because we had about 300 extras. We had all these stuff. I mean, it was just amazing shot. And if you remember it and, um, anyway, so I have a problem because I have a very dry sense of humor. And as I said earlier, when we're talking about Kim Cattrall, I tend to say things seriously, but to me, they're so insane that I, I'm thinking, well, obviously, you know, I'm joking, but I don't say it like this. You know, I'll say it like this. So when they're looking at the scenes and they're rehearsing with playback, these we got dancers actually to do the can-can. Uh, <laughs> they were sh- they shot they were shooting they were fin- or maybe they're just finishing shooting the scene. And I turned and I said, yeah, you know, I'm one of the, and with this 
uh, network exec says, it's so authentic. I mean, everything, I really feel like I'm in the 1930s. And I said, oh, I said, it's so authentic. As you know, the reason that the girls in CanCan and the Moulin Rouge kicked so high and it was so famous, which is true, actually, they didn't wear underwear. So you can just see everything. And that, you know, but you had to kind of look carefully because they had all of those, uh, you know, dresses and, and other, um, you know, undergarments and so forth, but they didn't have underwear on. And he like went, and he went like rushing away. And like next day, I get a call from the network. You must come down here immediately. We have to look at the scene. You know, I, what the hell is he talking? We went there, and they had got a special projector because in those days, and you've seen this in movies, if you have a movie being projected and it gets stuck because of the heat of the lamp, it you know, burn up the frame, the frame. will yeah. melt. And they they always show that they do that in movies. It looks kind of neat, right? Before computers. But there is a special projector lens that you could put on that has this big, thick whatever in front of it. So it protects the frame. So you can watch nowadays, of course, you don't think anything like this, but you can actually watch something frame by frame. frame, by frame. Mm-hmm. So, so they actually got that. And I actually had to sit there and in that sequence. And the problem was we hadn't cut it yet. This was the dailies. And there was about three or four cameras going. And so, and do you know how long it is to look at every frame? You know, it's 24 frames a second. We had to look at every frame when they were dancing. So, you know, because they thought they actually did not have their underwear on. (laughs) So they didn't know about the blessings, which was true, but they were freaked out about the underwear. See you. It's, um, so that was that, you know, and as I said, it, we used it, but you know, if, if you notice as the show went on, the characters themselves were so interesting and they're so beautifully cast. Uh, many of them were people that Don had used in other, like Battlestar Galactica and Baba Black Sheep and Magnum and other things he had done. And he had this sort of repertory of, you know, excellent actors and, you know, and they were really good, but they were so good and the writing was kind of fun that if you notice as, as the episodes went on, we made less and less reference, even to Sarah. Uh, you rarely saw her, if you notice, at the end. You thought, after a while, she really was just some nice girl who sang in the monkey bar. Uh, and you thought that Temboom was just some horny, horny minister. You forgot that there was anything, you know, because in early ones, remember, he would, if they were, there was like one episode, I, mean, I think I wrote, where uh, Roddy McDowell is actually talking and it, there's some kind of militaristic to it. And Tenbaum is behind the, the carved monkeys listening, mm-hmm. you know, and then gets caught. And then he goes back there and says, oh, rats, I, I'm looking for rats. I think there's rats back here. But um, it, which was interesting that we even forgot what their backstories were for a while because they were just so interesting. And, and which was funny was is that Sarah was not a singer, the character Sarah. Uh, she's a spy. So when they would do the singing, and she, actually, Caitlin O'Haney has a, what is a, you know, a Broadway-trained singer. She did musicals and, and so forth. And it's very hard for a, for a really good singer to sing. You could sing bad, but to sing so you're just mediocre. And it was funny because we kept getting notes from the um, uh, network saying, well, can't you get someone to dub her voice? Because, you know, her singing is okay, but it's... I don't believe that you would actually be hired <laughs> completely forgotten. And what we ended up doing is we actually told her, cause you know, she actually sang and then we would do playback. Uh, she was actually told her to just sing normally, you know, cause they, we're just sick of this network notes and no one really cares. But Don wanted things to be real. And of course his feeling was, you know, he wanted her not to be that great. 
as a singer. Uh, but um, those are the kind of things we had to go through. And then in the next episode, you destroyed the town. Well, there's a very <laughs> interesting story about that. Uh, that was um, Distant Shot Distant of Thunder. Distant Shot of Thunder, called. yes. Fascinating story about the origin of that episode, which is in the commentaries. And it's one of my favorite episodes, next to Last Chance Louie. Um, Don was, a, as I said, he reminds me so much of, I've never, of course, met Stanley Kubrick, but I you know, taught a course in him once, and I read about him all my life, and I'm a, you don't get me started, I can bore people for hours on Stanley Kubrick, I'm an absolute fanatic, but he drove his people crazy, they worked 24 hours a day, uh, but what they all would say about Kubrick, as I would say about Belisario, is you never did better work than you did under their tutelage, nor when you left them, you were, as I said before, a thousand times more talented uh, or better. He made you better or he forced out of you. He also, like Kubrick, chose really good people. And so he knew, but then he, made, he sucked them dry. The reason I mention all that was when we were getting close, we were writing those episodes, either, my, either individually or together, as I said, with my story editor, uh, the great George Geiger. Um, we were literally, we, they didn't know what epi- the next two episodes would be. We, would, we, would, we were writing an episode, then we'd come up with like a story idea for the next episode, which we would lock down so like, you know, sets and design and effects and casting could kind of start getting a, something, and then we'd write again. Well, it got to a point where, and it happened to all of us, I was so exhausted, and I rarely get sick, I got terribly sick. You know, just you know, flu, fever, but it was basically exhaustion. And I forced myself to actually take a day off, which you never, never do on a Belisario show. And you can't. And by the way, at that time, I was also starting to work on Knight Rider. But I was, you know, I had like 104 temperature. um, And I was, uh, you know, dizzy. I couldn't drive. You know, yeah, you've been there. You were that sick. The reason I mention this, is is that I was lying in my living room. I had the TV on, and I was kind of dozing in and out, and I was you know drinking a lot of liquid and doing all that. And I look up on the TV, and uh, I I think, wait, it's not Thursday night, but I see the whole monkey bar, I see the church, I see the you know the, in front of it, I see it's the whole exterior set of Gold Monkey on a movie. But and you can you know right away you can see this is not Gold Monkey because it's a different look. And I'm saying it's not tonight. And then <laughs> I look and I see talking. I see Spencer Tracy and um, Frank Sinatra. And at that point I said, okay, this is it. I've completely gone. I'm hallucinating. And I'm awake, but I'm hallucinating. I'm seeing Frank Sinatra and Spencer Tracy at the Monkey Bar. It's right there in front of me. I'm pinching myself. I'm awake. And I really got freaked out. I said, this is it. I'm losing my mind. I've worked too hard, you know, I'm going to have to commit myself for it. And then I'm starting to watch, and I see in the background there's like this volcano, and then there's a sequence where there's an earthquake, and the monkey bar and the church collapse, and all these great scenes going on, and people running, and they're in the same costume in the same period as Gold Monkey, and I'm thinking, what's going on? And then finally, it hits me. Because I'm a movie, you know, I don't know where I put my glasses three minutes ago, but I always know where, um, you know, I can tell you every movie I've seen and every line and everything in it. (laughs) 
I suddenly realized this is Devil at Four O'Clock, the movie. And I had never realized before. I said, wait a minute. And so I go, we didn't have internet then, but I go to one of my books. I stagger over to one of my film books. I think on the films of Frank Sinatra, maybe. Or Spencer Tracy, that's what it was. And I look at Devil, you know, and they have all the names, Devil at Four O'Clock. And I look to see the art director. It was Bill Tunkey. And Bill Tunkey was our art, our production designer, art director on Gold Monkey. And so the next day, I, I crawl over to um, to the studio and get back to work. And I go to Bill and I say, did you happen to work on a little movie called Devil at Four O'Clock? And he goes, oh, shh, don't tell him. And he says, yeah, he says, you know, it's the same period. He said, you know, I used the same blueprints. And Don knew it. You know, Don didn't care. Don loved this idea. He said, yeah, I used the exact same blueprints from Devil at Four O'Clock that I did for the whole monkey exterior. And I said, well, wait a minute. We have all this amazing stock footage of our monkey bar. So it's not, you know, your typical just a volcano or the famous shot of an alligator going into a lake or, you know, the, the stuff you see of monkeys running, you know, all the stock footage the famous, you used to yeah. see in bad BZ movies. I said, this isn't stock footage because it's the exact sets crumbling, you know, in lava and in earthquake, in this incredible earthquake. And so we quickly called the studio and they love it as long as you didn't have you know spencer tracy or or any actor just extras uh in a scene they're more than happy to sell you the stock footage so we got as much stock footage as i get where there weren't any actors and if you saw it it's an amazing you see fumaroles you see opening of you know uh cracks and crevices of the of the whole thing you see you know the the steeple fall from the church and all that stuff so I went with a with a very very good um, uh, storyboard artist, and I we picked the exact shots that we can get from the movie, and what shots we would need of our people running, and we would have to do sequences and formulas ourselves. And then I wrote this whole episode, of course, about Sarah picking up, which I actually have here in my office, uh, picking up this um, uh, very sacred statue and taking it, and because of that then all these horrible things start happening. And as you know, and then at the end of it, um, you know, uh, it causes an earthquake and, and whatever. And actually we thought that was going to be not the last episode forever, but what a wonderful way to end a season. And then of course it's no big deal on the episode two, episode one of season two, they're rebuilding it, you know, and we might be able to, Don wanted to do some changes with the monkey bar and do some other stuff. So maybe we can actually improve upon it or do some stuff, but we'd see them rebuilding. Yeah, it so it sure, wasn't like, it sure seemed like a, a season ender when it aired. Well, here's what happened. See, you're very perceptive again, this studio, I mean, the network basically said, Oh, by the way, we want you another episode. <laughs> so I don't know if you know what, there's another episode after that called, um, morning comes Matuka. Uh, yeah. Which was, really kind of a fun episode um, and uh, which had nothing to do with ending a show. But, and that the only sad thing about that was that, you know, we like to do shows that highlighted different people. Like of course, last chance Louie was brilliant scenes with Roddy McDowell. And that was going to be another Roddy McDowell show. And the day before, or I think the day we were going to start it, Roddy called us very upset and he had shingles really badly. So we had to write him out of his show. <laughs> and we had that wonderful, I think she may have just passed away. She was um, Princess Koji. And the actress who played her was just, yes. she was Princess Koji. She was, they're all remarkable. She was the sexiest, wonderful woman. 
but anyway, um, what happened is is that Don, there's a very other funny story, which I don't think I have in the commentary about the Volcano Show. And I am I still have an injury because of that show. <laughs> uh, Don was at that point getting really upset with the network and fighting with him. And in a way, he was kind of saying to himself, I don't care how good a show it is. I don't care how much I love it. I don't care how brilliant a show I made. I don't want to deal with ABC anymore. And so he was going to kill the show. He was thinking of it. So at the beginning, he said to me, and I told him about what we were, he loved the idea. I mean, he knew what we were doing using the stock footage and everything. So when we first started, he said, yeah, I like it. He says, I want the earthquake. He says, but I don't want, the volcano's really cliche. So he said, yeah, don't do the volcano. I said, fine. So I had written it with a volcano. And so when I finished the next draft and we we're actually starting to shoot, he goes, what's wrong with you, Tom? I said, what do you mean? Where's the volcano? He told me he didn't want the volcano. Said, Are you crazy? How do you do this as a volcano? You know, he said, let's do Jaws without the shark or whatever it was. He said, yeah, okay, okay, we'll put the volcano back in. So we put the volcano back in. And then, of course, when he's watching, a, a, he's doing a rough cut, he calls me up and he says, listen, I, you know, do you not listen? I told you I don't want the volcano. <laughs> to the point where, now what happened was, and this is getting your, your perception, if you remember, he said, I don't, I, he says, no, I, I don't want to come back with the show. He kind of, I think this is what he was thinking. He didn't say this. But I'm going to make sure that there's no island to come back to. So he got some other footage. I don't think it's from that. If you remember where the volcano goes into, basically blows up the whole island. And it's, it's a shot. And that's what you're sure referring that way. to. Yeah. And that was not our intention. And I didn't even know that until I saw, you know, the final cut and he put that in and that was his even though there's an which makes no sense oh because in morning becomes matuka it all takes place on her island so that's how we got away with that so we didn't have to worry about our island but it looks as if it's like you know someone dropped an atomic bomb on <clears throat> bora gora i mean it, he destroyed it but here's the funny part about that when we all got together and it was so great we don't do this anymore of course you know, for dailies or for movies, you know, you go into a screening room, a regular theater and watch your stuff on a big screen. Now, of course, literally the last project I did, I would see edits and rushes on my iPhone. You know, they would just send them over to me um, and, uh, you know, on a, in a file. And, and that's what everyone does now. And it's terrible. You don't get together. Anyway, we're all together in this kind of arena seating um, theater uh, in Universal we were watching the final cut, and when it was all over and all that, and I, he may have been joking, but I was right behind him. But Don said, you know, good work, everyone. Really good work. Tom, what's with the effing volcano? And, I had, and God or someone stopped me. I went to reach over, you know, to step over the seat, like two seats, to choke him. <laughs> I mean, I, whether I, and I said I pulled a groin muscle. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. I actually had to go to. The, I actually went to the doctor because I was in such pain. And I came back a couple hours, and he said, "You pulled a groin muscle. You know, just stay off your groin. <laughs> It'll heal. It's nothing serious." <laughs> but it was very funny. This Rich, Richard Lindheim I told you about, who was the executive, he was there too, and he was privy to all of this volcano stuff. And when I came back, he had called me, and it was funny. He says, "You know, Tom, I really was impressed with you." He said, what do you mean? He says, well, 
I was there through all of this volcano back and forth. And when he finally said to you at the end, what's with the volcano? You just kind of sat there just quietly. And I mean, that was such a professional move, Tom. I would have gone there and kicked the crap out of it. And I didn't say to him, well, that's because I ripped my groin off and I was sitting there in pain. But he thought I just sat there quietly. But yeah, so that's that episode. But isn't that wild that that whole episode came about um, because I was hallucinating and I and I had seen well, we doubled four o'clock, but you never, I'd seen it before, probably before I had anything to do with Gold Monkey. But what a wonderful thing. And I ended up doing that in a lot of shows in uh, where I would find these amazing clips and then I would write in Wildside, I, there's a brilliant movie called The Molly Maguires about coal miners in, in, with Sean Connery in um, Ireland in the 1800s. And they used to use child labor and there's these scenes of these kids dangerously, these, these uh, coal is coming down like a waterfall and they're like roped to the side of the waterfall of coal, um, you know, uh, picking big pieces out, you know, very dangerous. And I did a whole episode based on those scenes. And in the same one, there's a, um, a steam engine that blows up, and I use the steam engine blowing up. Uh, and it, you know, they gave they give you the ne- they give you the negatives or or an inner negative, so that the quality is really really. It doesn't look like the scratchy, typical you know B movie horror film uh, stock footage, because the other thing is there's so much. CGI stuff that never makes it to the film and they make a fortune because then other movies are built, literally built around those um, outtakes. Well, talking <laughs> about the uh, Bora Gora and the the destruction of, of the, the, the exteriors, do you know if the monkey bar exterior facade is still at uh, the Universal Backlot? It's a very good question. Um, one thing that was interesting about that exterior... They had this thing where uh, it was, it, but they, when you got to where the monkey bar was, there was like a a river that, or like a big pond uh, that covered the road that the tram went down. So the tram would say, "Oh my God, you know, uh, there must have been a a break, uh, you know, must have been a you know a plumbing break or a pipe break. There must have been something terrible that happened here. Uh, we can't get across." I need you all to pray. Pray for some miracle. And then at that point, the you know the Ten Commandments music comes up, and then magically the water parts on both sides, and you know there there's the road that they can drive by. And I don't know if they had that there, and that was a big deal. I'm sure it's not there. But the reason I mentioned that was that was right in front of where the monkey bar was, and we shot a lot of stuff there. And you know they would not reroute the uh, tram because you know they make a ton of money on the tram for us so on a um, we either had to shoot mos on those shots or you know we would have spotters um you know knowing when they're coming and we would like it's like you know shooting by an air an airport about every 15 minutes we'd have to stop shooting for about 10 minutes while they do the stupid thing going by um now Oh my God! You probably know better than I. When they brought came out with the Gold Monkey uh, box set of the series, and we did the there was also a making of documentary, as I said, that mm-hmm. I'm in, and Steve Collins, Harvey Laidman, I think Caitlin O'Haney. They went back east and did her. The producers of that wanted they did it. We did it in a studio with a green screen behind us, 
But they originally, which was a neat idea, wanted to do it at the monkey at the set at the monkey bar. So all of this was the point of being that at that time, and you would know better than I, that had to have been eight years ago, nine years ago, yeah, maybe. Was... Okay, wow, God, time flies. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, at that time, it was still up, and so they were tr- they were trying to make a deal. Um, because the company that did that whole box set was from England, that and they do like the one who's doing, which makes sense. The one who's doing the Night Rider is in Germany. They're doing the Blu-ray of the entire series, and that's where they they interviewed me for that too. So it wasn't Universal itself doing it, although it was in English and it did very well actually. The DVD it still does; it still sells. But I just bring that up because it was up at that time. I haven't been back to Universal. I would think sadly that. It's either um, uh, completely torn down and that whole thing is built into something else because the jungle was also right behind that. And if you remember, it wasn't just the monkey bar. We built a whole, uh, a whole lagoon and a pier. And so my point is, is that not only there was a lot more real estate because it was not only the monkey house, but there was a whole lagoon. And what that matched to with lots and lots of stock footage that they had shot for the pilot, and then they went back later and shot some more in Hawaii of the extension of the lagoon, which is not a lagoon. It's a lagoon mm-hmm. we call a lagoon, but it's actually supposed to be the shore, you know, right and behind it would be the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. We had uh, um, Davy Jones, who sadly has also passed away, who was the, who was the um, uh, pilot <clears throat> who actually flew the plane, shot all the stuff of the plane landing at an actual extension of that pier and boathouse and everything in Hawaii, and then it, 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 both in day at night taxing into you know, the, where the monkey bar was. So that was all there, and I'm sure it's all been taken down. I was waiting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think uh, the monkey bar, the plane itself was there for a long time. <clears throat> and someone told me that someone bought the plane. Yes. And... The goose and is now on display at uh, the Cradle of Aviation Museum in Garden City, New York. Wow! It, Boy, uh, you are amazing. I and, it and down. That is the one we use. That is our because there was two of them, but that's the one we. That's from. They say it's from Tales of the Gold Monkey. Yes, it's it's wow. it, it matches the tail number. Um, it crashed in two thousand five. Right, I know. Uh, I remember that. It was just uh, just the front portion of the fuselage and i don't know what all of the body of the plane actually survived the crash and was basically re rebuilt into a groom and goose and it's it's on display at, uh, at that museum now i noticed on episode six they start doing a process at the at the end of the episodes and this is before you came on but uh on episode uh uh six for a trunk from the past uh, when right. uh, Christian Nyby came on and did the uh, uh, did the directing on, I don't know if that was him or if it was a post editing decision, but at the, that closing freeze frame that we always used to get in the '80s, where the characters would freeze and everybody would have a good uh, laugh or laugh. Um, they do. You'd always have to end with a laugh. Yeah, uh, uh, and then you'd go to a sepia. It was um, done on a lot of things. Where it was done very specifically was on Wild Wild West to the point where every, at the end of every act before a commercial, if you remember, it would go to sepia, then it would go to a drawing, and then it would go to like the, up, the first one, go to the upper right-hand corner of this title card that had Wow Wow West, and then the next scene it would go to, so by the time it went to your finale, you had four 
CP, you know, illustrations from the from the um, from the last shot of each act, and then the credits went over that. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I saw the reruns and, of uh, Wild Wild West. To, and you bring up a very good point. There was a thing in all the shows where the networks use, especially if, like on a show like Last Chance Louie, which is a very dark show. I mean, you know, he, he prevents him from guillot. He almost he almost is guillotined, and there's there's a big wonderful save on that. In fact, there's an interesting one where we make a big deal of the fact early on that Steve was injured in the explosion and he has to have a cane and he keeps the cane. And I don't know if you remember, then I use the cane is what he uses to jam, to jam the mechanism. Uh, yeah. Jam the device so that the um, blade doesn't it just misses hitting, you know, Louis. And that's what we would do on so many things is you would create things. And then later on, they always, it's the payoff and you don't really see that anymore. And it, it's really, really upsetting. But the one thing that was that the network insisted that you had to have, and you're very perceptive on on, <laughs> on seeing that, that you always had to end with that laugh, <laughs> and then you would freeze frame executive producers own. They insisted that it ends in a, with something like in that one, which we did, and I brought it in because I knew we'd need it. Early on, I set up the fact that Moulier, besides having the Tweedledum Tweedledee scene, is selling um, pornographic playing cards. And at the end, I don't know if you remember, we have all these kind of daughters of the American Revolution kind of stuffy Margaret Dumont women playing bridge. And the scene is very sad because that's where Steve has to tell um, Rodney Miguel his daughter is dead mm -hmm. and who really did it and what went on. And it's very bad. And then suddenly Roddy looks down and says, oh, my God, where are those cards? And then remember, the women are playing the cards and she looks at the card and goes, ah! And throws them up, and then they laugh, right? You have to do that. Or end on the dog. That dog was remarkable. <clears throat> I, I shot a scene there, um, one of the episodes, and it was amazing. And I jokingly, and I, I jokingly said to the dog, uh, Jack, and I said, all right. So, Jack, okay, what I want you to jump on the monkey bar, and I want you to go over to this point here. Uh, oh, I know what it was. It was an insert. I'm sorry. It was in the Force of Habit where he... They decide to use the. That's another one of paying off. They, in in the beginning, they're bringing all this rum, which is to um, celebrate Victoria, Queen Victoria, if you remember, purple label rum. I actually have a prop of that here. And then when they're running out of fuel, they decide, if you remember, to pour the rum, to use the rum as fuel. They still have it there. So again, you pay it off, pay off, pay off. But there's a scene where they're all trying to get the rum in as fast as possible, and Jack. Is helps them by running out, goes to to the uh, box with the rum, grabs grabs a bottle, brings it to them. I said to him jokingly, I said, "Okay, Jack, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the box, pick it up. I want you to pick it up by the. It'll be easier if you could pick it up by the neck, which is also easier for your mouth, and then bring it over, take it to them, bark once, and then go back and do it again." And I jokingly said that, and then they said, "All right, let's go. Let's get the you know shoot real quick." And I jokingly said, "Well, no, 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 no. Where's the?" Where's the trainer? He's going to have to call him. And sure enough, they said action. And Jack, <laughs> if you watch that scene, he listened to me and he did it. Those are Jack Russells. Were the, that was the name of that breed. They were, uh, you know, we did this all the time with him. It was really kind of scary. Um, but we had, as you know, in those, we did scenes, um, and I'm very careful about animals, not hurting animals. Uh, but in the ASPCA, uh, really are on your ass when it comes to that. We had an episode, I think it's in Distant Shot of Thunder, where we had frogs, because it was supposed to be all the 
you know, the sins, frogs, locusts, rain. Uh-huh. The remember? plagues of Egypt. Exactly. And remember, we had all these frogs suddenly fall from the sky, sort of like Magnolia, which did it even better. But the frogs are suddenly, and they all pop into the monkey bar. Well, did you know that each one of those frogs had to have a little tag with a number on it? And we watched them because the ASPCA were there, and we had to make sure not only didn't we hurt those frogs, but that every frog was accounted for. You know, that if there mm-hmm. were 12 frogs, there better be one, two, three, four, five, you know, those numbered frogs <laughs> to bring back. In Wildside, I directed a scene, which is one of my famous, where, to make a long story short, it's a bank robbery, and there's a goldfish bowl that's been dumped over, and the goldfish is like, plopping on the ground uh and it was a real goldfish and then something happens it's a scene i'm really proud of but um the aspca person was there and we were allowed to have because there's a little boy who's cowering you know on the ground during the bank robbery and um he grabs the goldfish he doesn't want him to step on it and he holds it to his chest so we had to do that scene and i had to shoot it uh, because the gold, we had like all these goldfish, but no one goldfish was allowed to be out of water for more than eight seconds. And we had someone there on the ground watching, making sure it wasn't hurt, and with a stopwatch. Well, I think that's all great, actually, but it was actually very funny. People don't realize that even if you use cockroaches, you can't, you know, if you step on a cockroach, that, and in that wild side, by the way, <clears throat> the bad guy puts the goldfish back into the bowl, but then he shoots it. You know, he gets to the door and shoots it and kills it it's to show what a bad guy he is. And um, of, what you use, of course, is for the actual shot, because it's so quick, you carve goldfish out of a carrot and you put it in there. <clears throat> and, and all my years of doing this, I've never gotten more letters, there's no emails in those days, from people asking if we really killed a goldfish. <laughs> Actually, ironically, when it came to dogs... They were much more careful because the dog, like the dog that was in Toto, the dog that was in The Thin Man, uh, you know, and in um, uh, Bringing a Baby or whatever, they were making more money than most of the actors. And, well, like Rin Tin Tin and Lassie are perfect examples of that. But, you know, people would go to theaters to see those dogs. So dogs got it actually better treatment, actually better than a lot of the actors got. Uh, But we had a lot of, um, Caitlin was very involved in animal rights and so was Roddy. I mean, uh, you should do a whole thing. Roddy McDowell, you, you talk about an amazing person. You talk about stories. You think I go on. I might other. I mean, when if you look at his um, credits, if you guys go and look at Roddy McDowell, of course, you can know from Planet of the Apes. I mean, he was very famous for that. Oh, yeah. He was in everything that I grew up watching. Everything. Sure. But, but the thing he did, and I didn't listen to him, if you, you know, uh, something that I, if any of the people listening or anyone around, ever gets involved in the business. But in my in the day when I was doing that, I regret it. It was a little easier, but they still, <clears throat> if I came out with a big SLR camera and started taking pictures, they always had still men, or, or it was the same union for the still men were for the whole camera crew. They would, they would drop everything and walk out because you're not union, you shouldn't do that. But Roddy would do it anyway. Well, he's an actor, but he also kind of sneak it in. Because he said, when he'd say to me, and boy, was he right, when you get older, if you don't have these pictures, he says, these are going to bring back such memories. He did so much of that that before he died, he published about three incredible coffee table books. Can you imagine from his earliest days to the very end? Uh, you know, Because he, he took pictures on every single set he was on. Somewhere out there, there's hundreds of pictures from uh, Gold Monkey because he took lots of pictures while he was doing that as well. So you have the Pele Idol, you've got a, a bottle of Louis Rum, 
do you know what happened to the brass monkey prop from the monkey bar? Well, last, I hope it's still there. The last I heard, yeah, a very good question, what, that Don has it. To be honest with you, and no one talked about it, but it was an amazing prop, uh, gorgeous. And it was in his office for all the time, even you know, during Gold Monkey, because it was used only once. It was, uh, there's two of them. There's one that's actually in the monkey bar set. Oh, uh, and then there was another one that was used in the pilot, and that one was in Don's office. The, one of the ones was kind of was not made. It was not this one was. I don't know what it was made of, but it it may have even been made of brass. I mean, it was remarkable. The one that on the monkey bar could have even been paper mache or something. I think it was this in Shot of Thunder where all these things happen. I had uh, what are they called uh, stigmatas. I had a scene where it was funny. The first time I walked into the monkey bar before, while I was still working on Magnum, carved monkeys that went all the way across the bar, you know, in different poses and stuff. And I don't know, because just the way my brain works, I said, um, I, I would do a scene where there's a stigmata and blood is coming out of the eyes of all of the monkeys, which we did. And, um, but they built, which I would love to have had, you know, they built fake. They, they took those, those were actually carved wood. I'm sure all that stuff's gone. And they built special ones that bled from the eyes to do that scene. But that's where I think that, and, and Don, if I'm not mistaken, is in Australia now. I think, I don't know if you brought it with him. He, he sadly had this love-hate relationship about the show near the end. And as I said, uh, it had something to do with something that went on with ABC, which had nothing to do with us or the show or anything like that. And frankly, you know, he's done some great, great things in you know, Quantum Leap and Jag and... Airwolf, but um, I think the best thing he's ever done is Gold Monkey. I, it, that is Don Belisario. He put his heart and soul into that. Well, Mr. Green, I, I really enjoyed talking with you today. No so problem. Listeners can catch you on the upcoming uh, commentaries and extra materials in the Blu-ray release of Knight Rider then. Yes, uh, they have to look to see when it's coming out. Yeah, I don't think um, there's I a release date on that I get more information to you about but I would imagine by the end of the year, they just keep looking for Blu-ray of the, the whole series of Knight Rider. So who knows? But, but they also have going to have all other kinds of bonuses. They're doing all kinds of things on it. So uh, for Knight Rider fans, I think you're going to really like that. And seeing but, that um, you uh, you worked on the episode, the uh, Powers of Matthew Starr, I'd love to have you on again uh, another time to discuss that series. Absolutely, yes. And if you ever want to talk more about Magnum, I have some very, very, very funny stories. You know, that was a joy, joy to do. All of them. I don't know what it is here. I literally would take a moment in the morning and I would sit there for like half an hour and I would just, you know, I'm not that religious a person, but I would just thank Mother Nature whatever and realize I'm the luckiest bastard in the world to be able to do this. And uh, it is so much, it was always fun, always great. And I kept thinking, and they're going to pay me for this too. So, I mean, anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. It is, you know, and that's why I love to talk about it because it's, the, you, you remember the stuff you love and I love doing it. So, and thank you. It was just a great to, uh, to reminisce and babble on and on to someone like yourself who's so knowledgeable. I'm very impressed. It certainly is a, a, a lifetime of work that you've done. So, <laughs> yeah. I... yeah. Well, hopefully, as I said, I'm working later. We'll talk. I'm working on some really wild things now. And so, you know, it's, it's a whole other world. And uh, I'll be happy to let you people know when I'm allowed to talk about it more. So good night or good day or for everything, all of you. And it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for, for being uh, with us here today on Forgotten TV. 
goodbye to all those people listening. And again, it's a great podcast. I'll make sure more people listen. Following Tales of the Gold Monkey, Stephen Collins starred in the short-lived series Tattingers in 1988 and Working It Out in 1990. He later played Reverend Eric Camden on the long-running CW series Seventh Heaven. Jeff McKay was able to return to Magnum P.I. following Gold Monkey when producers wrote another part for him. He later appeared in a recurring role on the Belisario series Jag over several years. Jeff McKay died in 2008 at age 59. Caitlin O'Heaney appeared on Aftermash, Spencer for Hire, Alien Nation, and a number of one-off TV appearances throughout the remainder of the 80s, as well as the role of Snow White Charming on the short-lived ABC series The Charmings in 1987. Later, she created and sold her own Caitlin Perfume, which was reportedly adored by Naomi Judd, Rosanna Arquette, and Paula Abdul. The scent contains sweet gardenia, crisp apple, sandalwood, and patchouli. Today, she lives in upstate New York and occasionally posts on her official Facebook page. Roddy McDowell, after a long and successful career in film and TV, died in 1998 at age 70. Most well-known for his appearances in the Planet of the Apes films and TV series, playing the devil on Fantasy Island, and from films like Fright Night. In later years, he was a voice actor on shows like Batman the Animated Series, The Tick, and Pinky and the Brain. John Calvin had a string of one-off TV appearances in the 80s, Airwolf, Matt Houston, Knight Rider, V the Series, and Quantum Leap, as well as a recurring role on Dallas. Calvin seems to have retired from acting in the mid-90s and is currently 71. Marta Dubois had a recurring role on Magnum P.I., battled Picard as Ardra on the 1991 Star Trek The Next Generation episode Devil's Due, appeared on Matlock, Silk Stalkings, and a string of McBride Hallmark TV movies with John Larroquette in the mid-2000s. Sadly, she died just last year at age 65. John Fujioka continued as a character actor, appearing on numerous shows such as Matt Houston, Airwolf, The Wizard, The Monsters Today, as well as the 1990 film Mortal Kombat and 2001's Pearl Harbor. Since that time, he seems to have retired from acting and just turned 94. Sometimes actor Les Janke appeared in episodes of Aftermash and The New Mike Hammer, and in the 2005 film, Reeker. Over the decades, he has fought the good fight for the rights of the disabled, particularly in the L.A. area. Janky confirms, according to a Facebook post, yes, he is still alive and currently 71. For only lasting a single season, Gold Monkey has stayed with us in pop culture ever since. And the final episode of Gold Monkey was not the last we saw of Cutter's Goose. In 1983 and 84, TV Comic started running Tales of the Gold Monkey Stories in comic book form. TV Comic was a British comic book magazine published weekly from November 1951 until June 1984. It featured stories based on television series running at the time of publication and included The A-Team, 
Battle of the Planets, Charlie's Angels, The Dukes of Hazard, Star Trek, and Tales of the Gold Monkey, among others. These stories generally were two-color pages per issue and serialized over several weeks. Gold Monkey was printed in issues 1656 through 1697. All of these can be read on the Gold Monkey website. In the 1984 Season 3 episode of The A-Team, The Island, the gooses seen in this episode were drug smugglers operating from a tropical island hold the team's former Vietnam medic captive. The episode features stock footage borrowed from Gold Monkey. The 1990 animated series, Tailspin, created by writers Jim Megan and Mark Zaslov, seemed to incorporate elements suspiciously similar to Gold Monkey. In it, Disney character Baloo, with his flight cap and jacket, was a pilot of an amphibious aircraft in the 1930s era. Characters hung out at an island nightclub motel called Louie's Place, run by Louie, the orangutan character from The Jungle Book. In 2011, on the message board animationsource.org, Jim Megan admitted Tales of the Gold Monkey was an inspiration for the series. As mentioned earlier, in the series Quantum Leap, Belisario reused the character name of Gushi, who was a rarely seen computer programmer of the Ziggy supercomputer. And in the 1992 fourth season episode, Ghost Ship, Dr. Sam Beckett leaps into the body of pilot Eddie Brackett, flying a refurbished Grumman G21 called Cutter's Goose in the year 1956. The passengers, Grant Cutter Jr., and his bride, Michelle. They are flying through the Bermuda Triangle, and weirdness ensues. When asked about this apparent crossover, Don Belisario famously said, Don't examine this too closely. This became known as Belisario's Maxim, which probably can be shortened to Don't Sweat the Details. It's just a TV show. Gold Monkey clearly inspired Season 9 of Archer, called Danger Island in 2018. In this season, one-eyed alcoholic pilot Archer wears a bomber jacket, Army Air Corps service cap with insignia removed, and leather eye patch, and flies his groom and goose, the loose goose. I bet it's a gold monkey! No, not a gold monkey! You don't know that! Yes, I do! Not a gold monkey! Gold Monkey started running overseas almost immediately after its initial run. The pilot movie, as well as the edited together Curse at the Gold Monkey, were both syndicated as two-hour TV movies. In 1988, reruns of the series started airing on USA Network. The series spawned quite a bit of fan interest. At least one fanzine was published for Gold Monkey, called, of course, Cutter's Goose 
starting in 1985. In the 90s, fans started organizing online, and the Gold Monkey website was born. Much of the information presented in this podcast was from that site. I would like to thank Patricia Anino, John the Nietzsche Roby, John Hudak, and the others that amassed all this Gold Monkey information over the years. In September 1997, a 15th anniversary gathering was held in Van Nuys, California. Stephen Collins, Jeff McKay, Caitlin O'Heaney, producer Tom Green, director Harvey Laidman, and cameraman Bill Battersby were all in attendance. Video from the gathering can be seen on YouTube, and the link to it is right here in the show notes. In 2004, the Oklahoma Film Society held a three-day film workshop with a gold monkey theme. The workshop featured an auction, and the original eye patch for Leo, worn in the pilot movie, was sold. Anecdotes from insiders reveal Gold Monkey received more than its share of fan mail from viewers, with many requests for the series to be released on VHS and later DVD. Finally, we got a DVD release in 2010. Interestingly, NBC Universal didn't seem interested in releasing their own show, and it took a collaborative effort from Fabulous Film in the UK and Shout Factory in the US to license it and release it on DVD. It includes a 36-minute making-of documentary, five-episode commentaries by Tom Green, a photo gallery, and collector's booklet. It's a neat little set. A link to buy it is in the show notes, and your support of Forgotten TV is appreciated. It's sad the memory of this show is now besmirched by the issues mentioned earlier and many that never saw it will likely not give it a chance, and possibly some that once watched will now find the show problematic. Also, even though the show is on DVD, there are no video stores most places anymore, and the show is currently not on any streaming service at time of this recording. Outside of chancing across it on YouTube, it and shows like it from decades gone by may never be seen by most people. Many today will not even get the pop culture references to the series when they appear. The series ages better than most from this era, partially due to its period setting, but also due to the timeless sense of adventure presented. As Don Bear tells us, It had the romance of the 1930s, the bigger-than-life hero with the leather jacket, and the elements of intrigue of that time period. It was a lot of fun. That plane was a magic carpet, and it could take you anywhere. Indeed. With exotic locales, likable characters that endure, and faithful sidekicks. For fans of Tales of the Gold Monkey, it'll always be fun. Next time on Forgotten TV. It's back to the 70s as I consider the 1977 TV series Future Cop with Ernest Borgnine, Michael Shannon, and John Amos. That's next time on Forgotten TV.
Want more Forgotten TV? Become a patron on Patreon and gain access to Forgotten TV Supplemental, additional podcasts that go beyond the material presented in the show. Think that was all there is to say on Gold Monkey? Not a chance. On the next Forgotten TV Supplemental, I'll give you even more Tom Green, if that's possible. Hear his anecdotes on his first movie of the week, Working with John Badham, how his little nephew helped him write The Bionic Boy, more thoughts on TV and movie reboots, such as Baywatch and Chips, his encounter with Alfred Hitchcock, as well as Uncensored Tom, more background info on Gold Monkey from the show Bible, and I'll bring you Gold Monkey Fact Overload. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a producer and hear this upcoming podcast. The link to join us over on Patreon is in the show notes. Your funds are making a difference as I update equipment and pay for needed services. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton and Doc Pinko. With producers Eric Fusco and Ron. Associate producers Collecting Trek, Greg Blanchard, Julio Coppa, K.L. Young, the OSI Files, and Tyson Bowler, and production assistant, Martin. And a special thanks to Tom Green and Patricia Anino. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with ABC, Belisarius Productions, Universal Television, Shout Factory, or any production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making audio clips possible. Wade Weiser, Robert C. 2009, Carrie Gant Videos, Michael Marco, GoldMonkey.com, Mel Jarden, Carl Smith, Faith Genre, Talker One, Steve Stan, Scott Bakula, Topic. Sources of quotes and background information are from the websites goldmonkey.com, John Kenneth Muir's Retro TV Files, The Raider.net, CBI Theater, The WDA Guys Groom and Goose website, Vintage Newspaper Articles from Newspapers.com, Starlog Magazine number 334, and the book, The Encyclopedia of TV Pets, by Ken Beck and Jim Clark. Don't forget to like Forgotten TV on Facebook and follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Visit Forgotten.tv for all content and links. This podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.